Operation Red Pill. You know us, just two guys going beyond conspiracy theories, getting right into the heart of the conspiracy itself. I'm Jason Spears with my co-host, Christopher Dean. Rise and shine. Join us as we go behind enemy lines to reveal the truth about another aspect of this occult matrix as we discuss in this week's Intel Briefing. Easter for the King of Kings or Queen of Heaven. Are the seemingly benign traditions passed down to us from antiquity, like, you know, Easter egg hunts, for example, are they innocent fun or is it possible that the roots of these practices stem from paganism and actually lead us deeper into the occult without our knowing? We're going to talk about that and much more coming up right here on Operation Red Pill. Gentlemen, Easter egg hunting aficionados, anyone out there in the podverse with bunny ears and chocolate tails. What did he say? Everyone, welcome back to another episode of Operation Red Pill, where we take you beyond conspiracy theories right into the heart of the conspiracy itself. Now, we have got a Easter eggs basket full of stuff to get into today. We're going to talk about the true gods behind the Easter Holy Day. We're also going to get into who is the true Virgin Mary and what role, if any, does she play in the Easter celebration? And then finally, we're going to talk about what spirits are we inviting into our lives through the holy days that we choose to celebrate. But before we start bouncing in all of that hippity hop goodness, we got to take care of first things first. And that means introducing my co-host, Mr. Christopher Dean. How's it going, bro? Oh, man. How you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Have you heard of the... um the five love languages? Christopher, I need, I need to say I'm a little put on edge now. <laughs> now, you need to understand the context here. We're already talking about a day where there's chocolate-covered bunnies, and I'm telling you, everybody loves chocolate. I've gone on record as saying that, you know, from, <laughs> from the beginning. And so for you, within that type of a context, start asking me about, do I know the five love languages? I'm a little concerned. <laughs> it's interesting that, in some cases, you are completely lost without context. If you say <laughs> if you say bunnies and chocolate, you have no no trouble. No, no, no. I know exactly what that means. <laughs> Everybody in their mama knows what bunnies and chocolate means. Them is cold oh, words. <laughs> That's funny. But yeah, I, I have. Um, I actually have all three books. Oh, there's there's three books. There's a series on that. It's not just the five love languages. Um, okay. I, I think it's the five love languages and then five love languages of children. And then I think they break it down also between the genders. So I think there's more than three, actually. Okay. And unfortunately, I'm not in front of my library. <laughs> but it's um, they're all written by uh, Dr. Gary Chapman, right? I believe so. Okay. Okay. Well, I thought it was interesting because for those that don't know, the five love languages is different ways that people communicate love. So words of affirmation, physical touch receiving gifts, quality time, and acts of service. And the importance of these is that not everyone communicates love the same way, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. So one person might um, give and receive love through words of affirmation. This might be a a focal point to um, speaking to their heart. So when you give them words of affirmation and, and encourage them with words that really builds them up, builds them up, communicates your love for them. And then that's what they do for other people. You don't right. lift them up with words. However, if quality time is someone else's love language, 
then one person is speaking words of affirmation to someone that needs quality time. And then, then somebody is trying to invest quality time with someone that really needs words of affirmation. So there can be a, an equal amount of love. Like, I don't know by what metric we, we measure, like, I don't know, five gallons of love, leagues of love. I'm not sure exactly how you measure it in Western society. You probably <laughs> measure it in like two to three minutes. <laughs> you know, whatever whatever can be done in a two to three minute window oh uh, that's dangerous and that's that's a lot of love <laughs> but it's kind of uh, funny because i think in a western society we probably equate love to very self-centered means and probably filter through sexual expressions okay because well, we're it's, a highly it's, sexualized culture Right. And it's really interesting that you said self-centered means because a lot of people just assume that how I want to receive love is how someone else wants to receive love. Yep. So then we end up in this self-centered way of communicating and you can have people that are completely in love with one another, not be able to get along and have no idea how the other one feels because you just don't know how to communicate right. Oh, I've had this conversation with uh, friends of mine where we've had to you know, look at first introduce like you did the the concept of, of love languages. But then what's sad is that most people don't know their own love language, number one. And then number two, they're not aware of how they communicate to others through that. And then thirdly, they're not aware of the other person's love language. So there's a lot of stuff that you have to be aware of if you're going to skillfully navigate a relationship and it doesn't even have to be a romantic relationship. You right, know, just right. any sort of relationship, understanding how people perceive affection is very important. Like just and, and and I think that one of the things that's that's critical is for us to understand that as a species, we're similar in many respects, but in very specific aspects, we're different. And we have to appreciate those differences. Right. We're not created identical. God doesn't just do these cookie cutter versions of people. We're all very unique. And so that uniqueness normally shows up within the broader scope of similarities that we have. So what I mean by that, well, we all have love languages like you were saying. But Uh where we become unique is the love language that's particular to us or the combination of love languages that are unique to us. Yeah, because it's rare for anyone to just have one. Exactly. Like for me, it's like quality time and words of affirmation. Okay. Those two are very big for me, but it's and not even- everything that's listed under words of affirmation. You okay. know, more so it's words are how I determine that. And then also quality of time. Okay. I know one and I'm kind of, uh, hopefully this is all right with you. I'm exposing something of you and then claiming that I'm guilty of this, but this is a a conversation that we had between the two of us is um, tracking your location. Yeah. Right. For you, you know, just the fact that I know where you are. It's not a love language though. It's a care language. I just, we need to be specific. (laughs) It's just not the kind of love that you've been talking about. This whole first (laughs) part of the episode. Right. But no, go ahead. Go ahead. No. And it was interesting and I haven't done a good job recently and I'm, you know, coming to terms with that at this moment since we're talking about it. But yeah, it doesn't mean anything to me at all. You could send me pictures and say, hey, I know where you're at, you know, 50 times a day. 
and I really don't care. Like, right. that's cool. But for you, you know, just the way that you're wired, it actually means something that someone takes the time to look and to know where you're at and care where you are and the scope of things and the distance. It, it, it means a lot. And it really takes such a small amount of effort to communicate that care. But I have to think outside of myself because there's nothing about that that would communicate love to me. Right. And the same thing goes in in our friendship for you. What do you mean? Well, there are things that are important to you that aren't necessarily that important to me. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, or there are practices. Like, I think words are a big thing for you. Uh Uh-huh. But it's in a different way than it is for me. Like one of the yeah, things for you. I don't is, like criticism. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of stuff you don't like, you don't like being interrupted. Okay. Yeah. And that's being fair. interrupted for you is a a form of minimizing your significance. Uh-huh. And what you have to offer. And it's funny because I kind of grew up not funny, but it's interesting. I grew up in a household where words were the currency of the realm. And so everybody's fighting for space, right? Everybody's trying to communicate and you have to, you have to, you got to drop the bombshell in the conversation in order to score the point so that you you're heard. You weren't normally just heard because I need to give you space to express yourself. You're, you're fighting for that space. Interesting. So interruption is is part of it. Like I don't have the time or the luxury, not the time. I don't have the luxury to allow you all the space to form your point. If I need to counter it in order to not just score a point, but to be heard. Huh. So I need to interrupt by form by, by necessity. Okay. Right. So I've had to learn and talk with you not to interrupt. That's funny because now thinking about it, growing up, things were so um, chaotic. And like I was saying a moment ago. I'm out. (laughs) Episode's over. (laughs) Enjoy your Easter, everyone. (laughs) You should have seen your face. (laughs) Uh, That's not nice. Oh, your face was like, he just cut me off. There's this wonderful (laughs) scene in Top Gun (laughs) where... Maverick gets cut off by Ice Iceman. He's like, that son of a bitch cut me off. And that was like the look <laughs> on your face. Oh, it's priceless. Yeah. Now go ahead though, man. Yeah, it's about right. No, I was just saying that things were so chaotic that there wasn't really anything that you could do outside of like claiming that there's blood or someone broke a leg to actually get the attention of the adults at the time. Okay. So they actually had to cut out like show you that 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 you were important in the midst of it because you couldn't you couldn't like you were saying fight for that space you couldn't do that just because there was whatever was going on right because the level of chaos and trauma and stuff so that's interesting i never i never made those connections until you laid that out well it's funny that you said how you know tracking my location is important the other day my my sister got a hold of me and she's like what are you doing here she's like (laughs) you're supposed to be at work i was like i am at work i just they sent me over here she goes, oh, I've been following you for like the last hour. <laughs> and I was like, I felt touched. I was like, yo, that's kind of dope. Like you cared enough to just look up and be like, where's Jason? Like, yeah. I think coming from a home alone era and you could be <laughs> the kid that's left. Like, how'd uh, you forget about me? You know what I mean? Like, I, I didn't matter. Everybody else made it on the plane, but you didn't know about me. Yo, that's messed up. 
Poor little Kevin. You, you know what I mean? So <laughs> it being in a travel-related uh, occupation, and I'm constantly going places, it's possible for me to be in an adverse situation and nobody knows about it. You know, like I'm driving the other day. I hit I hit gale force winds, you know, 50, 60 uh-huh. mile. I don't know if that's gale force, but 50, 60 mile gust. It's possible for me to get blown over and to be, you know, on the side of a road or in a ditch upside down. Nobody knows. Yeah. Right. That that feeling of being dislocated from a connection point can be overcome just by somebody taking a look at, hey, I see where you're at. Like that, yeah. that means something. But it's funny because same sister, we were talking and she had happened to come back home. We ride in my truck. She's talking and she like touches my arm. And she's talking. And I, 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 I clocked the first touch. And I was like, all right. She clocked, she <laughs> says another sentence and touches my arm again. And I'm like, yo, yo, this got to stop. <laughs> this is way too much physical contact. Third That's topic, funny. she touches my arm. I said, hey, listen, you have to understand boundaries. And she looks at me like, what is your problem? And I was like, you have touched my arm three times. That is three and a half too many. <laughs> we need to start with a half negative of non-touch. But she's a touch-oriented person. Okay. And the ironic thing for me is I am too, to a certain degree. I wouldn't say it's one of my primary love languages. But in the family okay. I grew up in, um, particularly with, with this sister, at the time that I was my most formative, we didn't hug. We, we didn't really touch a lot. Okay. Like the way siblings would in a normal, healthy relationship. Okay. So now that we're adults, I'm like, don't touch me. Right, right. And for yeah, her, that makes it's sense. so natural and so normal. So I have to literally allow her to touch my arm. She's never touched me. I'm offended. Well, you're, she you're so tall. not care about me at all. I got it's kneecaps. Pro- what? It's not appropriate for a, a woman to be touching your kneecaps and you're a married man. It's not your wife. <laughs> I, I see the setup that's happening. And on behalf of my family folk, I'm just going to step in and say no. I don't want her touching no man's kneecaps. Uh, it's so bad. Like, I'm just, because my iPad is on my lap, so uh-huh. I'm looking at my knees. That was the first thing I thought. And I was like, oh, oh, that. Oh, no, I'm too late. Trouble. You already said it. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to definitely sleep. My bad. That's funny. But I, I do, uh, not to harp on this, but I do think it's so important for people to take the time to get to know their own love language but to also develop the skill of not communicating to others through that love language, but learning the language of the other person and making the effort to communicate through that. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't necessarily need the book. I mean, the book is very helpful, but just communicate, you know, right. Does, does this mean something to you? And you know, this is what means something to me. Now, as much as I love the whole love languages conversation, what in the name of all things cotton bunny tail does this have to do <laughs> with Easter? Well, I'll get there in just a second. I was just going to, just on the whole love languages piece real quick. Okay. There, there was a commercial. I believe it was a Walgreens commercial. And I tried so hard to find it. I probably spent an hour searching the internet for this commercial and I could not find it. There's right. Walgreens, CVS, one of the pharmacies that's open on Christmas or whatever. And the the whole scene is there's a guy downstairs uh, on his computer or whatever drinking a cup of coffee and his significant other, female, comes in 
you don't know if they're really married or, or what the deal is, but they're living together and, you know, they're romantically entangled. <laughs> She's All like, right. oh, you know, my you know, my birthday's today, don't you? And he's like, oh, yeah. She pours herself a cup of coffee and she's like, oh, well, what did you get me? And he's like, you know, I really thought about it. I really spent a lot of time thinking about what to get you. And she was like, oh, it gives him a big hug and then walks out of the room. Oh, he didn't <laughs> have to get her nothing. It was the just the fact that comes, he took the time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's, that's, that's dope. And the narrator comes in and he's like, because it's really not the thought that counts. Walgreens is open 24 hours. You know, that was the whole point. That's actually pretty clever. That's a good, yeah. that's a good spot. Yeah. It's, it's seared into my mind. I just couldn't find it, but you know, yeah, it's, it's not the thought that counts. It's not just that you're putting forth effort. It has to be effort in the right direction. And that's what takes us, you know, to the topic today is because I think it's the same with God. We're serving a specific God. You know, Jesus says that no one can go to the father, but through me, I am the way right? I am the truth. I am the life. It's very specific and um, uh, oriented on him. So if, if, if that's who God is, and we have to be specific about who that God is and where it takes us, then I think we need to be equally as specific about how we show this entity, either affection or worship or praise. I think it comes into the same Umbrella is the five love languages. However, we would want to be praised or worshipped, which is a dangerous conversation, isn't how we just get to to praise and worship the God, right? Yeah. It needs to be the way that he told us to. Because he didn't leave us in the dark about it. He said, look, these are my love languages. This is how, if you want to communicate to me that you love me, this is what you do. That's wild. I've never looked at it like that. I've always looked at it as you're just like, you got these rules. I mean, I know you're God, you're in charge. It necessitates some form of order. So there's going uh-huh. to be stipulations and things, but my gosh, you're like dealing with a tax code. <laughs> like when you get into Leviticus, make sure to keep all of my laws. It's like all of them. Yeah. Like there's three, <laughs> like, like there's a lot, God, you can't drop any of them. You must keep them all. And, you know, it keeps growing as as mankind progresses in evil. Yeah. We get more yeah. things that we can't do. And so you end up looking at a lot of these ordinances, a lot of these commands, a lot of the restrictions as, I, I guess, what, what's the word? What's a good word? You seem to look, to look at them as negative instructions for interaction okay and if you just put them within the context of do's and don'ts which i hear a lot of people say when it comes to to christianity as a whole you're just a a religion of do's and don'ts if you don't understand that it really may be more the case that god is trying to get us to communicate in his love languages then you misinterpret what you're being told and I've never thought of it the way you just pointed it out, man. I think that's brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. And 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 just the way that you explained that, it made me think, I think Mike Heiser teaches on the fact that the ancient Israelites were actually in, in love with the law, right? That they had a way different way of looking at, well, I'm not trying to say that we're under the law, but just to give some perspective, that they actually like cherished and embraced this law because if they adhered to the law, that it meant that they were in this this covenant relationship with 
the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and they were under his protection. Right. You know, it would be like, I mean, I guess faithfulness, ironically enough, in a relationship. You know, because we're in a relationship, or, you know, for instance, in my case, because I'm married, I'm faithful to my wife. And you could look at that as a a cumbersome, you know, thing, forsaking all others or whatever. This is just the crap that I have to do, and I'm not allowed to go sleep with whoever I want. That's one perspective. Or I could look at the faithfulness as being reflective of the relationship that I have and the covenant that I have and everything that comes along with this thing that I'm giving up. Right, right, right. Because it's a way of communicating love. I it think that's is. Cool. And I think it's also a perspective on how of looking at life, which has now got me wondering, what perspective do I view my relationship with God through? Like what filter, what lens? Is it through a lens of legalism? Is it through a lens of romantic affection? Huh. For me, I'd probably <laughs> say more in lens of legalism. Yeah, but it probably should be one more of affection. Yeah. I think it should be that way for, for everyone. I mean, every healthy relationship has boundaries. There are things you can do and that you can't do. There are things you, you should do and that you should not do. Right. Um, in order for it to, to maintain its health. I don't think our relationship with God is any different. Unfortunately, I, would agree. I think Western Christianity and Western society at large likes to practice free love religion. Ooh, I like that. Or is it like they have an open relationship with God? <laughs> yeah, not, not not just an open relationship, which is, <laughs> that's a wild idea. Um, <laughs> but kind of like that idea of I can engage in an intimate relationship with you any way I want to. And there's no consequence. Yeah, I've even heard people say, and I'm not saying that everyone in the Christian camp is like this. But if you just, you know, there's no way of really knowing what to do. So if you just try hard enough that counts and i'm like eh, i don't know if that's right right i i i think that that kane's life would argue to the contrary oh yeah that's a good point that is a good point god seems to be like very that. specific about how we engage with him right so that it's caused this huge debate in western culture now on whether or not we should be celebrating these holy days right well, you just took a step further than what I think most people do. Okay. Um, what I do? I don't think most people <laughs> actually. I don't think most people actually actively engage in the thought of should I or should I not engage in holy days, okay. particular holy day celebrations, because it requires an awareness of a particular nuance. Most of us are inundated with the idea of a holiday. Yeah. A holiday and a holy day are in most people's minds, I would argue two different ideas. Probably. Yeah. You know, the holiday is a culturally special day in which if I'm lucky, I get time off work to kind of ha have a good time. <laughs> yeah. Right. We got federal, uh, we got federal holidays. We we've got some, non-federal holidays we've we've got cultural holidays we've got religious holidays and that's about as far as it goes i don't think most people make the next step to realize that a holiday is really a holy day and even okay. from the the le <laughs> you've got this word by the way stuck in my head i've been using for the last two weeks 
What's that? Everybody, vocabulistics. <laughs> yeah, it is literally, even though it's not a word, it has become part of my vocabulistics. <laughs> <clears throat> but, you know, we're not influenced by the media at all. So. At all. So none of that time doing research for Guardians of the Galaxy had any impact <laughs> on me whatsoever. No. But I don't think most people realize that due to the laws of grammar, when you're putting H-O-L-Y and together with D-A-Y, you take out the Y and it becomes an I. Uh-huh. Right? So that's how you get a holiday. Okay. As opposed to a holy day. Right, right. So if we're going to ask the question, you know, what holy day should we be celebrating? First, I'm amazed at the person that could break down holiday back down into its constituent parts of holy days and then recognize the fact that holiness is always tied to a deity. So yeah. in, in whatever way we look at it, if we're recognizing a holiday, truly, not just the ones that the world tells us are, you know, holy days, but if we're really recognizing this, then we have to realize that it's on some level we're recognizing a deity. And as followers of Christ, we are required to make sure that we are recognizing his his lordship and his lordship alone. Right, right. And our culture will tell us that there are other things that we should be recognizing as, as holy days. Yeah. Like Martin Luther King Day should not be a, a holy day. It could be a day, it could be an important day. Uh-huh. Right? But it shouldn't be qualified or categorized under a holy day. Okay, that's interesting. I haven't taken the thought this far. Say uh, Valentine's Day. Well, I mean, you got to look at the you got to look at the roots, though. You do for all because if it's a holy day, who's who is the deity? Like you're saying, who's the deity behind the day? And then if we're looking at our culture, my next question would be: What deity or deities does our culture venerate? Which ones does does it hold in high regard? Because it's going to tell us, likewise, we should hold these in high regard. And it right. may do it in a direct fashion or it may do it indirectly, but it's going to do it one way or the other. This is true. So now what seemed like a very benign and innocent question has now mushroomed into this big theological issue. Okay. And in many respects, I think it comes in under the radar with most people. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I spent mo- a majority of my life not even questioning or thinking about it. You and me both, believe it or not. I mean, I know we're the ones right now with the mic and the and the, the magnifying <laughs> glass trying to, you know, point out these details of this this issue. But in all honesty, I didn't really think much about it. I didn't really care. Outside uh-huh. of do I get candy and do I get get out of school? When I got older, do I get off work? Yeah. Can it be can this can this holiday translate into a mini vacation day for me? Any day that I'm not at work is holy. Right? <laughs> Unto me. Right. Well, there, there's the problem right there. You exactly. just deified yourself. Right. But then let's ask this question just since since we got the mic right now, Christopher. All right. It, you just said that I deify myself, right? Uh-huh. Does our culture teach us to deify ourselves? Absolutely. Then it seems like it would be in line with what the culture wants us to worship. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Make us all little mini gods. Right? Yeah. No, that's that's definitely it. So, okay. And I know this is probably getting a little uncomfortable for people, but if you t- if you're if you're brave enough to take the next step, then the next step would be 
asking yourself the question, why do I celebrate the holidays that I'm told to celebrate? Or if we want to just shuffle a little bit, not maybe take another step past that, but just a little sidestep. Or why am I choosing to honor specific holy days coming from a culture that does not honor my God? Yeah. That, that that's a hard question to answer. Hey man, we ain't gotta go no further, dude. We hey, 30 minutes in, <laughs> we done wrapped the episode. We ain't gotta talk about nothing else. Nobody's gonna want to hear the rest of it. They're already upset. They probably have already <laughs> turned off. That's funny. But I think I think there is one listener out there, Mr. Skept. Oh, you hear him? Where where he at? I, I, I hear him. I hear him. Mr. Mr. Oh. Mr. Skept, what you, what you got, bro? <laughs> he wants to know, even if we can prove that it's not the like not the deity that people think, right? Whether it's yourself or some pagan deity or whatever. If if it is different, if the roots are different, if the practices come from something different, why does any of that matter? Why would it matter? Um, because like say someone that's thinking about Jesus during say Easter, which is why we're here. Well, I'm thinking about Jesus during Easter, so it doesn't matter where the holiday came from, what the practices are. This is who I'm thinking about. Okay. Now, so I'll oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No, that's all. That's all. Go ahead. There's a, a tactic in debate that is often used, which is you, when you're asked a question, you can appeal to an extreme example to make a point. Okay. And sometimes people don't like this, so they say that's not fair, but it helps to take the ambiguity out of it. Right. Okay. So, uh-huh. Let's take an extreme example, and then we'll back off of the extreme. We'll, we'll come a little bit more uh, <laughs> center line with this, right? But extreme okay. example, far left. Could could a man in a committed relationship with his wife? Wait, you're already shaking your head. Uh, I was gonna wait till you said it. I think you're stealing this from me. <laughs> No, because this is not something that you would do. But but I think this will help people. Could a man in a committed relationship with his wife engage another woman in sexual relationship and say, I was thinking about you the whole time and it not have an impact on her? That's that's my thing. That's not what I do. But okay, okay. All right. <laughs> wait, Time out. Wait, when you Slow all the way down. I know. I, it sounded bad. It sounded really bad. Okay. Anyone that's listened to the podcast this far knows that, like, you you help refine, right? Like, I come up with the ideas, and you're like, no, X, Y, and Z is bad. We're going to go with this one. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. So, years ago, before we were ORP, we were truthfully armed. Yeah. And we just had a website, and we released articles. And we had these cool graphics that we did. And I have a tactic that you said was uh, coming out and hitting people in the mouth early. And they didn't appreciate that too much. Yeah. And I remember I a specific slide that I was really excited about. It had this nice picture of Santa Claus in the center with the red backdrop. And it said this holiday season it said something along the lines of this holiday season. You know, I'm sure your significant other would be comforted with the idea that, hey, you were at least thinking about them or you were sleeping with someone else. Have a Merry Christmas. And you didn't let me post it. Yes, you were like, I no, remember. that's too harsh. So now you're coming in with, oh, I have this really good idea. Well, <laughs> or this well, really extreme on. example. Hold on. Since you're, you're jumping to this, 
this is not the first thing we talked about. We've kind of led into this. That's fair. Like you said, it has been 30 minutes. Right. Okay. So we, we didn't jump out the gate with this when it hit him in the mouth. <laughs> there was a buildup to it. But have, having said that, I don't think that a, that anyone in their right mind would be comfortable with that situation, right? Right, right. You know, I, was, I was just thinking about you the whole time, so it shouldn't really matter. No, uh-huh. there are boundary lines for any healthy relationship. The same goes for how we engage in our interactions with God. Remember, there are spiritual entities that are not only trying to get us not to worship God, they're also trying to get us to corrupt our worship and worship them. Yes. There's more going on than just us. Right? Yes, there is. This is true. Okay, let's 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 come back off of that extreme a little bit. Let's go to the Bible. Okay. I think it's very fascinating one of the earliest examples of strife recorded in human history is between Cain and Abel, right? Uh-huh. And it really wasn't between Cain and Abel as much as it was between Cain and God. Yeah. Cain was pissed off at God, and that was because Cain had bought an offering that God rejected. Okay. If you read this okay. with my ears prior to us doing ORP, okay. you look at God as an irritating drill sergeant, like someone who's who's OCD. Like uh-huh. the, the man bought you an offering. <laughs> w- w- seriously, why can't you just accept it? Why would you go and reject the guy who bought you the offering? He didn't have to bring you the offering in the first place. I mean, technically, you should have been grateful, God. Aren't you like the guy that, that promotes gratitude? Where's your gratefulness? Here, this man brings you the, the, the fruits of the field, right? Offering to the ground. This is good foods. This food is going to huh? technically go to waste because we ain't going to be able to eat it. We're going to have to right? offer it up to you. And then now you've got the wherewithal to not be happy about it. Oh. Right, that's that was immature, Jason. <laughs> you fast forward a little bit, and you, you kind of realize something that's buried in the text. And what's buried is this reality. How could God legitimately disqualify Cain's offering without there already being in existence some measure for Cain to know how to appropriately give an offering? Okay. It wouldn't be right. Like we don't yeah, read yeah. anywhere where that's there. Okay. So how could you expect them to give an offering up to code? If we're looking at the biblical record, the Levitical code doesn't come into existence until way later. Right. Right. That's the code that we have that records how to give an offering in the stipulations. Yeah. So what's up with Eden? That code hasn't been written yet. Okay. It seems to imply then that there was already in existence a code for how to give an appropriate offering, which would make sense before the Levitical code. Okay. Right. Post fall of man, prior to Moses, prior to children of Israel, prior to the Levites, prior to the code being given. Uh Uh-huh. It would imply that back then with Cain, there was a thing with an offering. And offerings are important because they signify our relationship with Christ. 
And that has to be in proper understanding, right? They are a type and a shadow of what Christ is going to do. Christ doesn't just offer, um, trying to think of the non-curse way (laughs) to say this. Uh, He doesn't just offer off the cuff offerings. It's a very specific offering. Yeah. Right. That has to meet specific criteria in Uh order to qualify, in order to qualify as an appropriate substitution and offering for us. So God's trying to teach that lesson. He's trying to teach it to Cain as well as Abel and as well as anyone else that was alive at the time. Makes sense. It does. I'm tracking. All right. So then if there are criteriums in place, even prior to the Levitical law being given, and if those criteriums are important because they help display the relationship that Jesus has with us and our submission to that relationship, and they display it not only to us, but to other entities that are watching, then how we choose to engage in worship, because offering is a form of worship, is critically important. Huh. It is not up to us to determine the limits and scopes of how we are going to engage in worship before our God. It is the prerogative of our God to determine that. That's dope. I like that. Therefore, where do we get off setting the limitations and saying this is fine? That's that's the first issue. No, that's good. You laid that out real well. Okay, now there's a second issue. Okay. The second issue is if you can engage in worship in any old kind of way, then is that worship really of an, of any value? Oh. Huh. There's a third thing to consider. <laughs> okay. If we are offering profane worship, I'm taking I'm, I'm building this and so I'm using different language now. Okay. So if we've already gone from I can do what I want, right? I don't have, if we've already gone from, I don't need to follow the standard and we move to, I can do what I want. Then we got to get one plus one equals. Okay. So now we've moved into profane worship because this is no longer the sanctified form of worship. Right. So now this is a profane worship. Okay. If we are now offering or if we are now engaged in profane worship and by extension, profane offerings, what spiritual doors are we opening up? Because remember, yeah. there are other entities that are watching and engaging. Watch. Now that's something I, I've noticed is not brought up very often in the holiday or the holy day debate. What is that? The other spiritual entities. Okay. It's almost as though we worship God in a vacuum. That would make sense because you'd, you'd have to have a more robust cosmic understanding of the biblical landscape than what traditional Christianity allows for. I don't okay. want people to think I'm harping on Christianity. I'm, I'm really not. But I, I do realize that. Western Christianity does not always measure up to biblical standards. Right. And we are called to follow Christ, not Christianity. Precisely. Great point. That that was dope. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Um, Without a real cosmic understanding that goes beyond just humanity and God 
and, and Satan. Because typically about all you get. And if we're being real honest, according to recent research that's been conducted, most Western Christians don't even believe in the existence of Satan. That's scary. Like it's it's decreasing. Just the the idea that Satan as an entity exists. If huh. if they don't believe in that, and the world at large believes even less, then where are we gonna where are we gonna place this idea of other entities? Which you need in order for things in scripture to make sense. Yeah. You absolutely need this. Like this is what yeah, makes paganism make sense. Right, because there's other entities. Exactly. This is what makes the Illuminati make sense. Right. And that's the thing. It adds a whole extra layer because it's not that paganism is just wrong as in these practices that do nothing, right? Right. It's not these these titles and gods that empty. don't exist. Exactly. They're not exactly. empty. Yeah. That's a good point. So now you've got this threefold problem that exists all coming from well it doesn't matter what i how i engage in this right uh-huh it doesn't matter whether this is pagan or not whatever that means and it yeah. doesn't matter that maybe the roots of this were were maybe quote unquote evil not that we really believe satan exists and it doesn't really matter <laughs> that maybe back in antiquity i shouldn't have done this i mean this is now and i'm not thinking about those things as i do this now so why does it matter? It matters for a number of reasons, three of which we, we just articulated. Here's a fourth reason why it matters. When it comes to spiritual issues, you cannot divorce the root of a spiritual practice. Well, let me, let me, let me rephrase. You cannot divorce a spiritual practice from its root of inception. Okay. How it was conceived will always matter, period. It is inconsequential or irrelevant whether a practitioner says this is important or not. What matters to the spiritual world is how that thing was conceived. Is this why the the law of first mention is important? I mean, kind of. Like, does it play on the same thing? I think it does. Like, the, the first time we see this, you know builds significance and gives a framework for this thing from that point forward. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you can never divorce it, no matter if it's politically correct or politically incorrect. It still okay. is this thing from the spiritual world's perspective and the spiritual world's perspective supersedes the natural world's perspective. Of course, in our highly enlightened Western mind, the spiritual world does not exist because we are subjected to evolutionary thinking and we are subjected to physics alone, primarily right. Newtonian physics. <laughs> and so this idea of a cosmic space isn't even something most people can grasp. And this is part of the reason why it's, it's toned down because if you don't have a place for this concept, you can't even deal with these other things that we're talking about right now. Worship okay. will become a benign thing. It's just, Hey, it's something that the, the fuddy duddies do. Uh-huh. It's something that the superstitious people do. You know, even when the Native Americans are like, I wouldn't cut down that mound, the non superstitious, like, oh, that's superstitious. <laughs> I don't care. Next thing you know, you're under a curse. Right. Like, what happened? I don't know. Well, that's oh, because that's there's a larger reality at play. 
And this yeah. thing that we've talked about before, this false reality overlay, it would come into play and say, hey, this doesn't matter. This is not that significant. This is where you get those questions like you were just asking. Uh, why does it matter what I do? The false reality overlay would suggest it doesn't matter. Okay. I mean, of okay. course, religion is just a thing that's a leftover. What do they call it? A vestige carryover uh-huh. of a bygone era. Yep. It's something that people needed to hold on to in order to explain the unexplainable. But now that we have science, we can explain those things. And so religion no longer is a necessity for modern man. But if you feel like you needed to be comfortable, well, then you can hold on to it. You child. <laughs> right. That's how it's treated. Yeah. I mean, that's how they pitch it. Yeah. Right. That's the false reality overlay. Because then as we engage in things, seem, thinking that they're benign, the reality is they are as benign as sticking a paperclip into an active outlet. Yeah. Looks benign. Whether, whether or not you believe in electricity. The reality is shocking. <laughs> 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 that's funny. Uh, does that answer the question though, man? No, I think it does. Okay. And and just the way that you explained it, because my mom, I'm going to throw my mom under the bus a little bit. Okay. Um, She she loves Jesus 100%, but she's she's been indoctrinated into these holidays so much that we have these conversations. And she'll admit, you know, she hears what she hears both sides, but she has a hard time emotionally, you know, with, you know, what do I do with this? You know, how do I engage with it? Is it enough evidence or whatever? You know, because it feels like it's still the right thing to do. Okay. And it's interesting that we we take that, you know, justification of practices and we only apply it, at least the the Christians, the, the Western Christians, it seems like, only apply it to the things we're already doing. Because to, to, to sum it up real quick, we had this conversation and uh, I was like, so what if I decided to, to, to decorate my apartment in pentagrams? She's okay. like, why would you do that? I was like, because I love stars and I love circles. God made stars. God integrated mathematics into all of, you know, creation. And and a circle is a great representation of that. I just love the way that it looks. Is it a, do you think it would be a good idea for me to just hang these beautiful things all over my apartment? She's like, no. Why? She's like, because it's steeped in, in the occult. I said, that right there. Hmm. Fascinating how we can get it in a, in a microcosm. Uh-huh. application but in in a in a macrocosm or a metacosmic application can't do it right that, that's the i mean it's the importance of citing an idea you got to be accurate close range you got to be accurate downrange right but that brings us to you know how did we get these holidays anyway you know if, if it does matter and i think that you did a really good job painting the picture that yeah it does matter where these things have made their birth, then where did they come from? You know, it, it's 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 a little bit, it's not heady, but it's interesting. It's very interesting how the progression of culture and Christian culture has has rubbed up against the world and developed kind of what we have today. It is. And I, I tell you one thing that, that the Holy Spirit has hit me with. You know, there are different things that I struggle with in my own humanity, right? Uh-huh. One of the things that I get challenged with a lot is, will this thing that you struggle with be in heaven when you're with Jesus Christ for eternity? How do you mean? Well, let's pick something arbitrary. 
I'm not ready to throw myself all the way out there just yet. <laughs> so all right. let's let's say that um what I struggle with is abuse of our barbiturates, right? Okay. So when we get into heaven, are we gonna be abusing barbiturates? Like is that the Probably thing? Probably not. Is Jesus gonna Probably be like, not. oh man, you gotta toss some more back, bro? You're doing it wrong. Let me show you how it's done. <laughs> Those are rookie numbers. Right, right. You gotta put up <laughs> real things. We we doing this for the angels now, baby. Don't embarrass me. Right. Is it going to be like that? No. I don't think so. When the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords literally sets everything right. Again, this is why it's so important to have a cosmic view of scripture. Right? Okay. When you look at evil on this planet and you realize it's not just the byproduct of the corruption of the human heart. Like that is a major component. But there are forces in the unseen realm that have actually infiltrated our particular realm of existence, our dimensional plane of existence and instituted systems of evil that have been inculcated into the culture that produce exponential forms of evil. Right. Yes. That, that then has the, the, that then has the result of producing chaos and evil on a cosmic level. Jesus has Uh to come back and undo all of that. Like salvation is not just about our own flesh. It's about restoring everything to its proper order. Uh-huh. Everything, not just humanity, right? That's much broader than humanity. So, will then the things that have been instituted in this cosmic order be, be corrected or will they be left intact? Interesting. That's an interesting way of looking at it. I think so. Because then there's a lot of things that come on the chopping block, right? Yeah, a lot of stuff is on the chopping block. That we now have to take a look at. Things that have become rather normalized in our everyday experience now have got a different component to them that we have to investigate. It's not as benign as it's being presented. Interesting. If it was, there wouldn't be that much of a fight over it. Like, who would care? Right. Yeah, if it really didn't matter, then we can just let it go. Right. But, you know, like, we'll, we'll we'll take one that everybody's like, okay, I can see that one. Do you think when we get in heaven and Jesus rules everything and he takes that rulership and brings it back to the newly created earth and institutes the father's government on the planet earth and by extension out to the rest of the cosmos, as he does that, is he going to institute jack-o'-lanterns? And is he going to institute, you know, skeletons <laughs> hanging around? And is he going to institute all of the wonderful things that we do in Halloween? Because, you know, it's really cool. We like that. Yeah, probably not. I don't think so. I think it's very inconsistent. I think there's a lot of things that fall into that. I, You know, I pick Halloween just as, a, as an extreme example. Right, because a lot of people can see that. Right, you can pick any of the things that, that we struggle with. You know, I, I don't think that the things that we have become accustomed to in our lives as a culture, as a as a nation group, as, as a species, are really going to be tolerated in that environment. I would agree. And not because he's OCD, but because these things at their root are evil. They're corruptions. They bring on iniquities they bring on perversities that completely distort the created order and the intended purpose of creation right it's not good for you it's like looking at a baby predator 
a baby predator? Yeah. What do you mean? Well, I was actually thinking like uh, a Yaucha, you know, the actual predator from. That's from, what I was thinking. Yeah, but I don't <laughs> want to take it that far. You ever notice how there's there's this big problem in Florida where people have got like an infestation now of pythons, which are uh-huh. not even native to Florida, right? Okay. And that's because everybody gets them as little pets and they're small and they're cute. They see them as these small, benign things. They don't look at them as this is a predator. No, it's not as cute. Like I look at you know how I feel about crocs and things of that nature, right? Yeah, yeah. But if you see a baby croc, they do look kind of cute. Uh-huh. Oh, look at the little needle-like pinchers. It's, I got me. It's, it's your little nut. <laughs> Ain't that cute? Let that thing grow up and mature. It will kill you and not think Bro. twice. Okay, my mind is exploding right now. Oh, I bet. I'll shut up. No, 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 no. No, it's good. I think the Jungle Book is indoctrination to accept sin. What the deuce? This has nothing to do with Easter. But all right, I'll bite. Yeah, no, it has, it has everything to do with it. It's like we're talking about. Okay, okay. So you have the predator, Mowgli, a human being that everyone in the jungle knows. When this thing grows up, he is a danger to everyone. Because he hunts animals, right? Okay. But the villain of the story is the one that recognizes that and says, we got to deal with this now before he becomes an issue for everyone in the jungle. He's the villain, and he shouldn't be. Shere Khan? Yeah. If Mowgli represents sin in its innocent state and we can let it in and accept it, despite what it might be in the future. Okay, I can see it as an application. I don't know if I would make the argument that that's what that movie was designed for. Even though it's from Disney? You, I, there's more information you got to make to make a stronger case. And you know, I'm, you, you know I'm already on your side. We might have to do a film over your eyes on that one. <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting. And as a philosophy that, hey, he's cute now and he's innocent now, just let it go. It's, it's at least dangerous. It, it is. And I was going to say just playing with that idea take it further what is that scooby dooby dooby doo i want to be like you i want to walk like you talk like you and you too now i'm the king of swingers from the jungle vip i reached the top and had to stop and that's what's bothering me i want to be a man man come and stroll right into town The one who he wants to be like mankind. So if Mowgli represents sin, uh huh, he wants to be the the next evolutionary step of sin. Uh, oh man. Okay, let's leave that alone. Let's get back to to where we were at. <laughs> That's interesting. It yeah, is. that was like I said. We, it, it, I couldn't go as far as to say this was what Disney was intending with it, unless I did some more research. It's it's forthcoming. I mean, we talked about Jungle Book, but you were making the point about sin. You know, are these things going to be allowed in the kingdom after? Okay. So if they're not going to be allowed in the kingdom that Jesus establishes, it definitely has to raise the question, then, what kingdom are they from now? Okay. Yeah, because if it's not going to be available then, then it didn't come from him now. 
because God never changes. Exactly. Interesting. And if it didn't come from him, then what entity or entities did it come from? Or just all together to be safe and save ourselves, you know, hundreds of hours in the library, we'll put this under the kingdom of darkness. Because essentially that's where it's going to, to fall. Right. If, if it's not the kingdom of light, it's the kingdom of darkness. Easy. But we don't yeah. all want to let this stuff go. It's it's comforting. It is. Now, I will tell you something I find interesting before we start tracking down a little bit more of this idea of where these come from. Uh-huh. Can you think of a holiday that you hold tightly to that was introduced into your life in your adult, your adulthood? Nope. Come on. You can come up with one. Uh-uh. You're telling me not one holiday? Um, no. The only thing that I have, like... The only celebration that was introduced to me later in life that I'm kind of attached to would be Daytona Bike Week. Is that as a as a biker, I I shun to ask the words. Is that a is that a holy day? No, it's not considered a holy day. And if anything, in the in the hierarchy of of celebratory um, festivals or whatever, it would probably be second on the list. Really? Um, to what? Yeah. Sturgis. Sturgis is number one. Okay, without a doubt. Okay. Uh. But yeah, that would be the only thing. And even at that, I'm not, I mean, I miss it all the time. I miss it more times than I actually go down there to Daytona for bike week. So what about you? I can't think of one. Okay. Which means then all of this holiday conversation for me and for you, and I would venture to say for the vast majority of our listening audience probably comes from our childhood exposure to these holidays. Uh Uh-huh. Now, what does that mean in in real terms? You know, us being a a platform, we don't just look at stuff on its on. <laughs> we don't look at it, it straight on. We look at all aspects of it, right? We try uh-huh. to look at things circumspectly. I've been watching House of Cards, and so I've got this House of Cards idea in my head. <laughs> you know, okay. We we try to examine this fully spectrum. So on the surface, you hear I was introduced to this in my childhood, that doesn't mean much. Uh-huh. But to a thinking person, we recognize what is your childhood and the developmental cycle of a human being. It is the most impressionable stage of their development. It is yeah. also the point where they are the most defenseless. So not only are they, are they highly impressionable, they also are not skilled at defending themselves So what that means to a person with hostile intentions is that this is the prime moment in the life cycle of a human being to introduce a nefarious idea that they are likely to hold on to just like that predator. Okay. um, Okay. Remember my cute little crocodile? Right, right. Don't take my cute little crocodile from me, mommy. It's my cute crocodile. This, This is toothy. And, and Toothy and me are like like this. That's really convincing. It's scary that how how on point that voice is. What <laughs> that little kid voice? Is toothy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and you're mean if you take Toothy from me. But see, uh, an adult <laughs> understands that thing is going to grow up and it will eat you. Yeah. One of my coworkers recently, uh, he introduced. I don't know what video this was from or a story, something like that. We were talking about this week. This lady had a a I think a python as a pet uh-huh 
And she went, she was sleeping with it. Like had it in her bed, cuddle up with it and all. Uh, uh-huh. So I always thought pythons might make interesting pillows. Okay. They were like solid muscle, but I, I've wondered what would it be like to just lay back on one? Okay. My Negro senses will not allow me to do that ever. <laughs> but, but you know, as a thought exercise, I wonder. Yeah. So she had, had this thing. She, she would sleep with it in her bed for a while. And she actually went to the vet because she noticed that it had stopped eating. And okay. she was concerned about it. She's like, he's not eating. He's not doing, you know, he's not behaving like he normally does. And the vet asked, do you sleep with your, your snake? She said, yes, yes, I do. So comfortable. So wonderful. And he goes, stop it immediately. Your snake is not sick. She goes, no, what's wrong? He said, he has stopped eating because he's fasting. And the reason he's <laughs> fasting is so that he can consume you. While you've been sleeping, he's elongating himself and measuring out your your measurements to make sure he's got enough space to consume you. <laughs> you talk about sleeping with the enemy. Yeah, yeah. But and I think in many respects, dude, we are just as naive. Yeah, yeah. I, I would agree. I would agree. Like, I don't know a lot of people that track down the history of a holiday. And why would we when most of the time this holiday is introduced to us in our childhood? Right, so it's good. It's innocent. I made it, it through my childhood. It does, and we form emotional bonds with it. Typically, yeah. they're positive bonds. I don't know a lot of people who hate Christmas that also argue for the consistent practice of Christmas. <laughs> right? But yeah. it's when you love Christmas. It's when you love Easter. It's when you love Halloween. Uh-huh. And why you love it. Well, and it's interesting that there doesn't seem to be a lot of neutral ground here. True. Which should also raise a red flag. Either you're you're madly in love with it or you can't stand it. Due to trauma, you know, t- terrible things can happen around the holidays or whatever. Right. But there does seem to be just two primary camps. I can't wait for this to be over and can't it last forever. Right. Now, for, for us as serious followers of Christ, we, we've got a pretty big problem. Okay. Our problem is we're situated between the crossroads of Bible and culture. Yeah. Like these are the two predominant forces. I I guess um Bible would be an immovable force and culture is an unstoppable object. <laughs> what do you do when you're sandwiched between those? Yeah, and it seems like throughout time though, they're perpendicular. Right? They're not parallel to each other. They're not. That's because they're they're in conflict with one another. Yes. Right. Scripture yep. covers this when it talks about the 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 fruits of, of the spirit or the fact that the spirit itself is in conflict with the flesh. Yeah. The flesh is one of three enemies that we are constantly at war with. Yep. And just by extension, the spirit is also at war with the world, the systems of evil that that have been institutionalized to our culture. And then it is also at war with the evil entities, specific entities that are hostile to God. Right. Right. All three of those we're, we're at battle with in scripture. Uh-huh. But we've got a problem. The problem is that as Christians are, are um, I'm going to say this from like a theological perspective. Um, our religion is an extension of biblical Judaism, right? Not present day Judaism. Right. Biblical right. Judaism. All right. Which finds its roots in the, the Abrahamic, 
code and the, the Abrahamic quote unquote tradition. All of the history that's recorded in scripture shows that that people group came out of very specific circumstances, right? Okay. And God was very specific in making sure that they do not engage the practices and customs of the surrounding culture. Now, yeah. the the quick question would be, well, why? Is it just because God is OCD? Is it because he's anal retentive? Is it because he only wants, he's selfish and he just wants all this stuff his way? Or are there bigger forces at play behind why that statement has to be made? I will take uh, bigger forces for uh, 500, Alex. Smart bet. Smart man. <laughs> the only way, again, that makes sense is with the cosmic view of scripture. Okay. Right now, you and I have talked, I think, I, I want to say it was back in the Ultra series, way back when in the dusty parts of the opening chapters of the, of, of the podcast. Uh-huh. We covered some of this biblical history. Yes. Right? And it's important, again, you start with Genesis 6, you get the angels coming down, you get them institution, you get them installing the various systems of evil and creating the satanic control matrix version 1.0. Right? Yeah. Then uh-huh. you get the judgment, you get the flood, it resets, and now you get version 2.0 that has to start up. Okay. Right? Uh-huh. And all, yep, the, yep. all the different nation groups that come about from 2.0 come about from Babel. Babel is a spiritual event way more than it is just a a quote unquote historical or archeological one. It is primarily a spiritual event. Uh This is what produces the nation groups that we have, right? Man is divided into different nation groups based on clans and tongues because the language is confused. Yes. This resets the clock but it also creates the different cultural groups that we end up with over those different cultural groups were placed angelic overlords who, according to scripture, abandon their posts and decide that they want to seek the worship that should have been given to God for themselves. And they too fall. Right. And they become part of the corrupted fallen evil Entities that are subservient to Satan himself. They become, let's say, generals within the satanic kingdom. Okay. Makes sense. Right? Uh-huh. And they institute systems of evil that are integrated together. That becomes paganism. All of this is designed to not only render worship to themselves, but to funnel worship away from God to use that worship to power up spiritual, to to provide spiritual power in order to enact evil within bloodlines that we would come to today to call Luciferian bloodlines, right? Uh Uh-huh. This type of stuff forms the synagogue of Satan, which scripture alludes to. And this is how we get the corruption that we have today. These culture groups start developing their own specific practices. Right. All tied to worshiping the spiritual entities that were over them that were disobedient to Yahweh. And what's the right word? Treasonous. And and defecting to Lucifer. Ooh, I like those words. 
<laughs> right? Uh-huh. With these various rituals and customs comes the traditions of holy days that we get today. Okay. As Christians, I said we have a problem. The problem is we are part of a belief system and a lineage of people that have bought into this idea that God has tried to reestablish the proper way of doing things in the midst of this hostile environment where all of these other nation groups have decided to, to submit to entities that are hostile to God. So now it becomes critically important. Do we follow their customs or do we not? These customs are not accidental. They're not benign. They are very important because they are rituals that worship their gods. And their gods are in direct contradiction and violation to the authority and lordship of our God. It's not innocent play. No, it's not. So when we fast forward 2,000, 4,000 years to us, Christian, Western Christianity, and specifically, you know, downwind from the original inception of not just our belief system, but even the people group that it comes from. We can't be so naive to suggest it doesn't matter. It's matter for 4,000 years. Yeah, that's a good point. And specifically, our God set up spiritually counter protocols to offset these things that were already in the earth. Right. There's no way we could really make the argument it doesn't matter. That's That's a solid point. When you look at the whole thing in scope. Right. On yeah. what grounds can we honestly say it doesn't matter? You make a hard case. My sister told me I should be a lawyer. I said, no. Uh, <laughs> nobody would like me. Yeah. I'm I'm barely liking you right now. <laughs> <laughs> and you're on my side. I know. I know. Man, I would not want to be on the other side of this. That's funny. No, that's a good point. And I think when we're looking at that, then... If it is just as important as you're saying um, to not practice those pagan things, or if they're that important, then we need to really look and make sure the things that we're doing are separate from the things that the the pagans did, from the religions that, that stemmed from the Tower of Babel, correct? You have to, absolutely. And that gets, it gets more interesting and it gets more difficult based on how we perceive the events in Scripture. You know, like if we start skimming over some of the records recorded, like in Daniel, for example. Okay. Where we get the five metallic kingdoms that are supposed to actually show the, they're supposed to show the preeminent kingdoms of the, of the world. Right. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So you start out with Babylon, which is not only again, archeologically important, but it's spiritually important. Like Babylon is considered the, the home base for evil on the planet. Right. You move from Babylon to, uh, I believe it's Persia. Uh-huh. And then you, you move from Persia to the Medes and the Greeks. Mm-hmm. And then from them to Rome. And then from Rome to going down this metallic uh, statue, because, again, this is King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon at the time, coincidentally, who has this dream that he believes is, or that Daniel says is basically given to him from God's throne himself. And uh-huh. it's to show what is going to happen to the earth, to, to the Gentile world. And he breaks it up into these five kingdoms, right? And you get to Rome and Rome is broken in, in, into two parts, which represents the legs of, of this, the statue. 
Okay. We follow that historically, right? Where Rome is divided into East and West. And then you have the issue with the, the feet and the 10 tribes and the fact that it's talked about the feet are made with clay and iron and that there'll be a mixing, but that won't actually, that won't actually cure. It won't cleave. Then there's a lot of stuff that we can talk about and get into that. But my point in mentioning this is that if you follow the United States, the United States has a tie to Rome. In many respects, the United States is considered the new Rome. Yeah. We have so many cultural overlays to Rome that it's, it's wild all the way down even to our national symbol, which we're known by the Eagle. And of course yeah. there's hidden symbolism behind that. We all, we all know that that really is not a bald Eagle. It was originally designed as a Phoenix, but even if we go with the Eagle, Rome had the Eagle as their principal symbol. Right. Right. And everywhere we go, we're, we're just covered in Eagles. Look at our military personnel. They got eagles from head to toe. Uh-huh. Right? We, wherever we go, we're known by that. There's a, a huge carryover from Rome into the establishment of the United States. But the United States would seem to have more significant spiritual pedigree than just Rome. I believe it was Francis Bacon who stated that the purpose for found, founding America was for it to be the new Atlantis. Right. Right. Now, some people hear Atlantis and they think that that's maybe a mythical place, doesn't really exist. Other people have a different place to situate the idea of Atlantis. I don't know where you stand personally on Atlantis. Um, I'm not sure. I could go either way with it. Okay. I'm moving more towards the perspective that Atlantis represented a, a Nephilim hub. Okay. Back in antiquity and was probably taken out with the flood, but I think its memory was carried on. Now it may, I may be wrong. It may be more recent than the, than the flood. Okay. But that's about the, what I've seen, what some of my research is pointing me towards. Okay. If that's the case, we immediately understand where the significance of that spiritually comes from. How do you mean? Well, Atlantis is not a holdout for Yahweh. It's, it's not a outpost for the kingdom of light. Okay, true, true. I see what you're saying. If, it, if Atlantis was a hub for Nephilim kings, then it's a hub for satanic, not just activity, but it's a hub for the kingdom of darkness. Okay, right. Makes the sense. things that yeah. extend from Atlantis then have got their roots in Satanism. Right. Okay, well, if one of the huge fathers of our of our culture, Francis Bacon, states that the purpose for founding the United States was to be the new Atlantis, then the customs and cultures of the United States have got to come to immediate question. It doesn't mean that they are immediately bad or nefarious, but this should definitely bring them into question. And you have to do that in understanding not just the intention for why the United States was founded, but also understanding the history and the people who came to influence the cultural mix. Remember, we're considered like a, a melting pot. Uh-huh. We've got so many cultures from overseas and native cultures that influence right. the spiritual fabric and architecture of our land that we can't act as though there's no influence by outside sources. And when I say outside, I'm not just speaking from like an ethnic line. 
I mean, again, thinking of this from biblical perspective, one group of people were created and called out in order to be an example to the rest. What to do and what not to do. So if you become Uh a melting pot with the rest, how are you not going to be influenced by the what not to do? No, that makes a lot of sense. If you get customs that come about from the, from the melding of the outside influences that you're supposed to be separated from, how does that not, how does that not play in to the days that you consider holy? Right. Run that through an additional filter of, we know that the, the, the nation that we are talking about in question, the United States was a nation not dedicated to the God of the Bible, but on record has been dedicated to what all pagan gods. I don't understand the logic of how a a country or a culture that comes from a country that's dedicated to all pagan gods is going to produce customs, traditions, and whatnot that's benign. Right. I don't get it. No, it doesn't make any sense. At all. So I think, to me, the discerning person would be incredibly curious as to where do these customs come from. Okay, you want me to take you back? Sure. You got to go all the way back, not to like the beginning of creation. I mean, that's where I was. I was like, we talking dust particles? (laughs) No, post-flood, right? After the flood, because the flood reset to zero. Okay. So then, you know, we had to rebuild everything. So in that building of things, we can kind of, believe it or not, see those same um, anchor points in the world today that were set very quickly after the flood. I know a lot of people are not going to believe that. So flesh that out, (laughs) prove it. Okay. So Nimrod from a a historical perspective was the first King of Babylon. And if you, um, anyone that's familiar with like Egyptian mythology, the Pharaoh was also considered a God, right? Like they have this pantheon of gods or whatever, but Pharaoh was also considered a deity. Not very different was the Babylonian belief. So being the first king of Babylon, he also had, um, was granted deity or the Bible even says that he, you know, became a Giborim. So something changed and he became supernatural in a sense, right? I can roll with that. Okay. So he became known as the sun God. And then he got married to his, I believe it was sister wife, because that's just how, that's how they roll. Semiramis, who became the moon goddess. And then in a weird turn of events, they end up having a son, Tammuz, who is the son of God. So all pagan structures actually tie back to this first king of Babylon after the flood and have a father God, mother God, son of God structure. And the the reason it's kind of hard to trace out is because shortly after the, the rise of Babylon, right after the flood was the tower of Babel. Okay. Was it three generations from, from Noah or three generations from the flood? We have the tower of Babel. So we don't learn from history clearly. <laughs> right. But you have this worship of Nimrod, the sun God and the father God and Semiramis, the mother God, the moon goddess and Tammuz, the son of God. And then you have the separation of languages. So then they, take on all these other forms. And that's how this kind of thumbprint is seen throughout the cultures is because they're really talking about the same 
set of people or the same deities. It just got shifted in um, at Babel. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, it's wild because I've heard growing up that there might be connections and similarities between the various religious ideas spread across the, the planet. But then that's not a very mainstream idea within Christendom. You know, a no, lot of the idea is that you're just dealing with various demonic entities that came up with these false gods or gods that don't really exist and have just deceived people into believing in nothing. Right. That's been kind uh-huh. of the, the contemporary idea that's presented. And this it's, it kind of creates this patchwork idea of people just believing in wild fantasy and you're like who who would do that like you're sacrificing kids to no one like that doesn't seem to make sense you're just bowing down to a carved uh, statue like Mm -hmm. that seems almost moronic right almost the same way that people kind of try to character character uh there goes one of those words characterize thank you that no problem that's why i'm here uh, well, they, they try to do that with Christianity and, you know, you believe this invisible guy in the sky mm-hmm. and you're right, like, no, right. that's really a straw man type of approach that doesn't really give the complexity of what we believe in. Um, I find it way more fascinating and way more intellectually satisfying the biblical narrative that puts forth the idea that there's an integrated network that these okay. belief systems are all connected back to Babylon, which represents the, the home base for the occult outworkings on the planet earth. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Post flood. This is, this is ground zero. Mm-hmm. And so everything that we get after that all has its roots back in Babylon, the great whore of Babylon, the mystery Babylon, um, you know, all of the wickedness that we see is why it shows back up in revelation. So it's really cool to see that there is actually a system of beliefs between these various culture groups. What's mind blowing is the idea that each one of these culture groups is actually telling the same story. Yeah. Yep. That's wild. It is. It is. Cause you don't think of it. Cause what in Egypt we have Ra, Isis and uh, Horus. Right. Greece, uh, we have uh, Zeus, you know, is the the father, Artemis, and um, Adonis. From the Greek movie? Jup- <laughs> no, not, not the same. Well, no, no. I'm, I'm just saying it's Adonis, Donnie Creed, you know, from the from the Creed franchise. I, ha- I only watched the first one. Okay, Christopher, stop watching Guardians of the Galaxy and one and two and all of this other stuff. And go watch Creed. One, two, and three. I've wanted to. There's been a seed growing that goes, you know what? You have no excuse because you have access to go watch them. Okay. But here's what's interesting, really quick, because you just said um, uh, in Greece, it was Zeus, Artemis, and Adonis, right? Zeus is the father god. uh, Artemis is the mother god. And Adonis is the, the, the son of God, correct? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that in the Crete franchise, his name is Adonis, and he's the son of Apollo. Interesting, because in Rome, it's Jupiter, Deanna, and Apollo. 
So they're both representations of the the son of God. Yeah. That's that's wild. That's crazy. Man, I I saw somebody do like a whole breakdown of the Rocky movies. Just like a I don't want to know. No. A brief recap on how I wanna know. I like Rocky. Death and rebirth and all that. You will not ruin (laughs) Rocky for me. (laughs) Oh, if I can find him, I'm sending him to you. That's great. I see I see what our listeners feel like. (laughs) <laughs> Sheer they just terror. try to ruin everything for him exactly like don't <laughs> say funny. anything else i like this one anyway but does it what are some of the other cultures that this shows up in uh nordic culture we have odin joro and thor okay and, and some some of these do have different names and then another another thing to keep into consideration is sometimes in the telling of the story because the son of god is supposed to be the reincarnation of the father god then you get sometimes even those names mixed up, but it's the same story. Okay. It's the same basic structure and the same story. So like in Hindu, we have Vishnu, uh, Chandra, and Krishna. Okay. And then the uh, Roman Catholic Church has God, the Virgin Mary, and Jesus. But that's that's a can of worms for for a little bit later. Yeah, I'm trying not to say nothing. Because I, I know there are some 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 heads that exploded. Right, right. But one of the other names for the mother goddess was Ishtar. And that's where we get the name Easter for our Easter practices. Now, there is some contention. I was looking up in Britannica. There is some contention, and you're bound to see this if you if you go to investigate and try to figure out what is really behind this is there's there's essentially two schools of thought. One is the that seems to to us at Operation Red Pill. Uh and you can um chime in if you want to Jason <clears throat> that Ishtar or the Easter is a derivation of the name Ishtar. So the actual Easter practice is is pagan in its roots and connected not just to name by all but the practices as well to the this pagan structure, right? Right, right. That's what we've talked about a lot. Right. But this other idea is this weird kind of linguistics gymnastics that you have to go through that it's um the Easter is this like version of the Latin or Greek term for Passover and that that's where we really get it. You know what? That's wild because I was talking to one of my close friends about this this whole topic of Easter way before we started recording, right? Okay. We were still doing some research, and immediately I, I met strong resistance, and that was the argument that was given to me off the bat. Okay. And I was like, no, that still doesn't add up. But for them, that was the the means to dismiss the idea of digging deeper into what we call Easter. Right. Cause it would be nice if it was just that simple, but it doesn't make any sense because why would you come up with different names for Passover? Like we already have Passover and there's, I mean, there's people that practice Passover today. And then why, if it is a, if you're recreating or trying to, how do I want to say, if just the name is changing, then why do we have, a different timeline. Right. It's a lot of unanswered questions. It is. Yeah. Passover is not practiced the 
first Sunday after the full moon of the spring equinox. That's not when it's derived. So it doesn't make sense that we're like, oh, yeah, well, this is the name that we got from cannibalizing this other practice. You know, even like Good Friday to Resurrection Sunday right. is not three days and three nights. Like it just doesn't make any sense that you would take something and, and distort it so poorly if, right. it, if it's really supposed to be about Jesus. It just doesn't walk for me. Exactly. It doesn't make any sense. Exactly. But w- what is alarming is how our Easter practices do align with the pagan ones. You know, beyond name, we can, you know, if, if we can be undecided about name all day long, even though I think it's kind of willful ignorance to reject the pagan roots here. Let's let's go to the, the practice of where the, the story of the, the pagan structure that gives us those kind of practices. Does that make sense? Yeah, essentially like what pagan story gives us the, the celebration of Easter? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think the people wants to know. Okay. All right. Well, I'll tell them. I'll tell them. So we have uh, Nimrod, who's the sun god, the father god, and his sister wife, Semiramis, the moon goddess. I'm sorry, dude. Every time you say Nimrod and his sister wife, I'm imagining that the entire state <laughs> of West Virginia came from Babylon. <laughs> like that's And we it apologize to all of our listeners in West Virginia. <laughs> instantly, our listenership went to zero. From West Virginia. Uh, that's funny. Did you know that West Virginia, the population of West Virginia, is less than Central Ohio? The whole state of West Virginia has less people than just Central Ohio. Really? Yeah. You would think with rampant inbreeding, they would have a pretty steady population. <laughs> I kid. I kid. Uh, that's brutal. That's brutal. But no. So going back to this bacon structure. Uh, they're married. They're considered the, you know, um, king and queen, god and goddess. But then this this terrible thing happens to the sun god as he dies, which is weird because if he's a god, he shouldn't be able to die. Careful now. Yeah. Oh, that's fair. That's fair. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We, we kind of have an entire belief system <laughs> that's based off of that very capacity. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. But the, the, the sun god, father god, Nimrod, dies. And then Semiramis decides this is her opportunity to, to capitalize on that. So she kind of elevates herself. Now she's the, like, numero uno, right? Like, she's the head honcho. And uh, she claimed that Nimrod's spirit came to her in, in her sleep or at night. And impregnated her, and this is this is where we get the idea, at least from a from a pagan source, the idea of immaculate conception, because she's you know you'll hear virgin birth, mm-hmm. but she wasn't a virgin. It was just that it wasn't a physical entity that impregnated her, which is why it's immaculate conception. I think that's a very good uh, distinction because anytime I hear virgin birth, I'm thinking just that. Primarily right. because that's what comes out of our, our, you know, that's what comes out of scripture. Yeah. Mary, but no, Mary was a virgin. Right, right. And that's different because Semiramis was, you know, as we'll see, promiscuous and, and all of that because she's the also known as the fertility goddess. And she practices what she preaches. Right. 
Exactly. You, you can't you can't be a virgin fertility goddess. It just it doesn't work out like that. And as we see, one of the ways that they would celebrate this immaculate conception was um, sex orgies. Amen. <laughs> Are you converting? Is that no, what just no, happened? No, I had a momentary lapse in the flesh. <laughs> That's hilarious. It, it was so emphatic. I was like, oh, <laughs> we might have just lost one. <laughs> said, no, Lord, I'm not cheating. I'm just trying to just research purposes. <laughs> it's a little independent research to understand the uh, customs of these people. So I can report back to the folk <laughs> at ORP. The more accurate report. Uh, I don't want to report on that. You Thank don't want you. no reports? No, 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 no. That's fine. No. But yeah, so that's, that's what this whole Easter because one of the names of Semiramis was Ishtar, is this immaculate conception of Tammuz, who was the sun god. So it's the son of Nimrod, but also the reincarnation of Nimrod in Tammuz, who is the son of God. So in their, yeah, it's crazy. So in their celebration, they did have wild sex orgies. <clears throat> and sorry, just to go back, it's, they they picked the the Sunday following um, or the first Sunday following the full moon of the spring equinox because Semiramis was the moon goddess. So it makes sense. It's got ties to these celestial movements. A full moon, you know, n- noting just um, fullness of, of of pregnancy or her at her height or whatever is, is um, achieving this fantastic conception and reincarnation of the father God. Okay. And, um, so they had the sex orgies. They baked cakes to Ishtar. They got drunk. <clears throat> uh, one of the things that the uh, priestesses in the temple would do was they would lay they would lay prostrate on the floor of the temple, and then people just could come in and plant their seed wherever they wanted. Get out of here! Because it's a fertility <laughs> it's a fertility festival. I could never really wrap my mind around that concept. No, it seems really weird. Like, can you imagine all year you're with your wife and your neighbor, like, like Bob's been plotting on her all year. And then here comes okay. this festival and you're like, babe, where are you going? Oh, well, I got to go to, uh, Sam Aramis's temple, you know, Ishtar's temple. Oh, here we go. Okay. Well, do your thing. And you probably got two different ideas. Like, well, she's going, I can go to the temple. Cause I know what happens at the temple. And you okay. walk in and your wife's like down there. And like Bob is plowing her. Yeah. Like that'd when, be weird. Part of you would want to be upset. Right. But then at, on the other hand, this is all part of the festival. So while you may also be able to get your jollies off. So is Bob. Like, yeah. What do you mentally, what do you do with all of that information? And I mean, that's just one repress. Person. <laughs> yeah, I mean, imagine dude, how, how much trauma that's gotta be on, on some level, even if the wife and the husband are okay with it. Like it's gotta destroy the bonds of marriage. It has to mm-hmm. destroy the psyche of both people. Um, you're forming soul ties, both the woman and the man and the man and the woman. Mm-hmm. That is a lot going on, not to mention the sexual energy is being released. It's a giant sex ritual. It's just, yeah, it's hard to actually 
contemplate, really. I mean, this is almost be like going down to Mardi Gras and everybody's butt naked getting it on. Like Mardi Gras yeah. is crazy as it is, from what I'm told. Never been there. Yeah, me either. Right? Me either. But I mean, you normally hear stories of, oh, yeah, there was this chick with tatas was shaking and we gave her some beads. And there was another mm-hmm. one. And you're like, oh, that was just crazy. Oh, it's a couple people just walking around butt naked. Couldn't believe it. It was it was yeah. raw. Right? You, I've been you to a couple a sto- parties where people were butt naked. See, yeah, but a couple parties were people, but not like the whole thing. Right? It's not yeah, that's just different. Everybody's naked. Like everybody's naked involved in a giant like sex orgy. That's yeah. That's um that's unnatural. Yeah, it's not good. You know, to the Western mind that's over sex, you're kind of like, oh yeah. You know, I made a joke about what it go. Hey man. You know, but there's a lot of a lot of people that might think, ooh, that sounds like a good idea. But I think when you run this thing out, no Yeah, when you too, really look at it, it's ugly. Yeah. When I mean, you run it. Yeah, you you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You put some miles on that bad boy. Like this is like, <laughs> It's, it's a lot to really wrap your mind around. And then what do you do with the pregnancies? That's, that's an interesting point, right? Like they, what do they you, would, act, what do you what do? do? You Are we talking abortions? Are we talking, we keep them? Like what happens when your wife, like a few months later is, <laughs> I think Bob got to me. That we'll just sucker have an, Bob. <laughs> we'll just have another party. I guess you, you might, you might have to, right? Uh-huh. Next thing you gotta you gotta eye Bob's wife. I'm gonna get you back. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a really like it almost turns your stomach to actually think about the um just the the perversion and and what that would really do to a culture to a society. I'm so glad you used that word though, because we live in a, in a culture where everything's allowable. You know, you tell your truth, I'll tell mine. I got my version. Uh-huh. Of how I want to do things. You got yours. But to flat out call it what it is, perversion, I think is spot on. And it's just always, when we do this type of research, some of the stuff that we come up with, it's troubling to really contemplate it. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, yeah. I mean, did your wife, does your girl have like a, a uh, an Ishtar uniform? You know, she puts that on, she's going to the temple. Do you just re-rationalize it away? Like, well, I mean, I know she might get railed, but I'm going to do my own track lane and call me by I mean, the plumber. Like I it's mean, amazing the things that you can get conditioned to, to real think are normal. Quick, right? And I don't I don't even uh-huh. know how I don't remember how long the festival lasted. I'm not I'm not sure either. But I know it, it began like the well, it began 40 days before. Okay. So I guess, unfortunately, because it's sad if anybody dies, but Semiramis ends up giving birth to Tammuz and he lives 40 years, but then he gets killed as well. Okay. And he gets killed by a wild boar is the, is the myth, but because he was 40 years old, then they would fast for 40 days before this celebration. That's interesting because that sounds a lot like something that happens in a very similar time in, in, in our, our society. Oh yeah, it's a uh, it's exactly the same as Lent. Really? Uh huh. In Lent, forty days. Lent is forty days. That's wild. Is there yeah, a connection then, beyond that between Lent and these uh, 
the the pagan rituals of of Babylon? Well, yeah, I think that we derive the the practices that we have for Easter now from these ancient traditions. So the reason we fast for 40 days, especially if Catholicism has picked up this pagan structure, we fast for 40 days to mourn the killing of Tammuz. But it's interesting, he was killed by a wild boar, and we also have what? Easter ham is what we eat, right? Whoa. Yeah. Semiramis wanted people to go and kill pigs and eat them on this day of celebration. Is that kind of and like kind a, of, uh, like, like a, a, a uh, sacrifice, not a sacrificial, but like a revenge? Yeah, yeah. Like symbolic revenge for Tammuz because it was a pig that did the, the killing. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, real quick, the, um, the Bible even references this, the, the time of, of mourning or whatever, like the 40, the Bible doesn't say 40 days of Lent, doesn't say Lent, but this whole pagan pra- practice of mourning Tammuz actually shows up in the Bible. Ezekiel talks about it. I think it's 8, 14, and 15. Nope, nope, nope. I don't believe you. No, you don't believe me? No, because I don't read my Bible and I didn't read nothing about Lent. <laughs> I, I I didn't read nothing about these 40 days, except it no, that's what I said. 40 Those... days and 40 nights. That, that's all. <laughs> no, Lent and 40 days isn't in here, but the actual practice of mourning Tammuz shows up in the Bible. Really? Yeah. Ezekiel says, he brought me to the north gate of the Lord's temple and some women were sitting there weeping for the God Tammuz. It says, have you seen this? He asked, but I will show you even more detestable things than these. But yeah, so this was a pagan practice acknowledged as being bad, even in the Bible times, because they're mourning the death of Tammuz for this, this ritual. Crazy, right? It is. Like, it's so dope when you see stuff in scripture that pertains to the stuff we're dealing with today. Uh huh. Right. When that connection is made, that, that, that breaches, not breaches, but that covers the 2000 year gap. Mm-hmm. Between us and them, it's wild when that happens. I also yeah, think it's kind of cool that, you know, the people were only crying for Tammuz, right? Okay, that doesn't seem like a really big thing, as far as an action goes. Right, like they weren't sacrificing, they weren't, you know, killing, they weren't sex rituals. They were just crying. Right, just weeping for the god Tammuz. Yeah. B- but it's detestable, nonetheless. Not even a small sin. Like, detestable is pretty big. Right. I think that goes to show that the actions we do have significant weight in the spiritual world, even if they seem relatively benign or, or minor here in the natural realm. I would agree. Well, it reminds me of Daniel and his fast. Like he prayed and then fasted. What was it just bread and water or whatever for 21 days? And okay. this had, you know, however it works, because we can't know all the, the intricacies of it. We're working I mean, Dan Duvall might. We're, we're yeah. working to try to get there. <laughs> yeah, but there is a connection between his fasting and the fact that Abel, Gabriel was dispatched to get him the message. Right? Yeah. So so even something you know, is, is benign is, is fasting or withholding food or, or, you know, like you were saying, weeping for the God Tammuz. These, these things all have spiritual connections. I think it's important going forward because 
as we start to tackle some of the deeper things within this this holiday of Easter, it can be very easy to slip into a defensive posture of this is small, like this is not a big thing. What what don't put more emphasis on it. Don't try to make a mountain out of a molehill, as my parents used to say. You know, yeah. you're straining at a what do they say? You're straining at a gnat and swallow a camel. Like uh-huh. there are other right, things right. to be focusing on. And I think the reality is no, these things matter. They are huge in the spiritual world. Mm-hmm. And just because we as human beings want to minimize it to satisfy our pride is a form of deceiving ourselves. Oh, for sure. And you had talked about the, um, what the technology of, of deceit or sin, you know, making things look like less of an issue than they really are. Okay. You know, working like stealth Mm -hmm. that it doesn't make it disappear, but it goes, Oh, well that's not really, that's not anything to worry about. We'll just let it slide through. Dude, that was like back at the beginning of the show. It was, it was, but I remember it. And it sounds like that's exactly what's going on with this topic right here. That's not that big of a deal. Right, right. I think that's the way the enemy sneaks in. Yeah, for sure. You know, there's um, another practice that we do at Easter that's talked about in the Bible. Okay, what's that? Uh, Have you heard of hot cross buns? I don't. I meant to subscribe, but I've been a little busy. (laughs) But that sounds like a nice little workout. Type, type of oh, oh, you thought it was a workout? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, given your comment on the orgy, I don't know what you thought <laughs> subscribing to Hot Cross Buns. I, th- I thought it was going to help give me the shape and form on my derriere <laughs> that I always wanted. You know, it was a thing between religious and CrossFit for your buns. Wow, that's that's a whole lot going on. It was a hot cross. <laughs> buns. It was all in the title. Buns, buns, yeah. Exactly. But I, I think it was uh, it was Deuteronomy, but it talks about how the pagans would make cakes for the queen of heaven. Okay. And this is interesting because we talked about Semiramis is known as, you know, the moon goddess, mm-hmm. the mother goddess, the queen of heaven. So here we have the ah. same practice, baking cakes. And it's interesting, the cross that's put on it, because um, for Lent, there's even, you know, crosses that, that uh, devout Catholics will get you know, put on their head. Is it at the beginning or, or end of Lent? I can't remember. Do you know? Not a might clue. Be the be- might be the beginning. But yeah, they, they do have a little um, like cross put on their forehead. I remember the first time I had seen it. Did it freak you out? Oh, yeah. I was working at a cashier. Okay. At, at, at a, a Kroger. Mm-hmm. And all of these people, it was about closing time. And all these people were coming in with these crosses on their forehead. And I actually went to a manager. I was like, um, do you know there's like a cult walking around here? And they're like, what are you talking about? I was like, look, there's a bunch of people with crosses on their head. Like, uh, it's because it's Lent. I was like, oh. Yeah, I had no idea. Oh, you better than me. First time I found out about it, so I was like, yeah, it's Lent. I was like, like, dryer Lent? Like, they got they got sheets of bounce to help you with that. <laughs> like Lent. I actually hadn't connected those two things. See, that's how my mind works. This is why I need help. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, bounce will get that right off for you, son. You, you ain't got to walk around with that on your forehead. Oh, that's so funny. Uh, but yeah, so the cross is actually the cross of Tammuz because Tammuz's symbol was a cross. It wasn't the Christian cross that we envision now, if you say a cross, okay. you know, that has like the, the three points on the top are shorter than the, the one on the bottom. Right. 
the the Tammuz cross was really just a cross, like two lines crossing themselves. So it looked like a plus sign almost. Or an X if it's tilted. Or an X, yeah, if it's tilted. Okay. Exactly. Interesting. This is the cross that's typically put on the foreheads of Catholics at land. This is also the cross that you'll find on the hot cross buns that we bake in celebration of Easter or during the Easter celebration. Interesting. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And the, the, the fact that these practices are even talked about in the Bible is mind, mind-boggling. Exactly. Like, I've got the same feeling about this as I had when we were doing research on the Star of Rimfan. Okay. Because, you know, dude, a lot of times we'll talk about how the Bible anticipates this or anticipates that. And, mm-hmm. okay, that's kind of within a box of stuff we know. It's wild when there's we encounter stuff outside of the box. At least for me, it is. Yeah, yeah. And I find myself wanting to turn around to God and be like, the Bible anticipated that too? <laughs> yeah, because it, at least for someone who, or for people that grew up, like, surrounded by this stuff, mm-hmm. there definitely seems to be dissonance between Sunday school teaching of the word, right. you know, and the rest of the world. Like, unfortunately, it's not taught in an integrated sense the way it should. So you have all this stuff here and then the Bible over here. Exactly. But to actually draw those connections and the the weeping in the morning of Tammuz and the baking of the cakes to the queen of heaven all touches to this pagan structure is crazy. It is, dude, because like you keep saying queen of heaven and it's reminding me I've heard other terms that reference that same person. Okay. Like the divine feminine. Or the Madonna. Yes. 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 Right? This, this it, as It's wild. All that stuff is connected. Uh-huh. So it you really have is. a singer like Madonna. I used to, growing up, I just thought it was her name. And not like a persona or an embodiment of exactly. an idea. Was, exactly. I didn't think it was any of that. Now, having this type of research, you know, at, at my fingertips, I'm able to go back and realize that, it's not just a name and it, it is a title, but it's a title of an actual deity. This, this human being sought to take on the title of the queen of heaven. Yeah. That's messed up. Like I thought Madonna's <laughs> biggest problem were the cone boobies that she was running around with. In the 80s. <laughs> right. Cause those are always weird. You okay. I mean? do, do you know what I'm talking about? Like in the eighties, she yeah. had the uniform on where she had like little like construction cones. They were like solid gold. She'd be running around on stage. Like I just thought that was kind of like a, a weird entertainment type thing. Okay. Now I'm like, oh please. That's all that's one thing. I mean, it makes sense why you'd be drawing attention to your breasts when you've taken on the title of the Queen of Heaven, who's a fertility goddess. Yeah, yeah. Blew my mind. It's nuts. It's it, it just saturates everything. But um, going back to the the practices, the the sunrise service is another thing that we typically do for Easter. Yeah, right. See, growing up, I remember my my pops would he would say we don't celebrate Easter like we we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. Okay, that's something because that's one thing that's always bothered me. It it still has the name of this pagan goddess. And we're like, as Christians saying that we're going to go celebrate this day. 
Right, but Resurrection Sunday, Sunrise Service, they're all just as bad. Yeah. They're, they're rebranding the original problem because what wasn't said is that we're celebrating Passover. Right, right. Right, and there may be some hidden meaning embedded in the term sunrise service. Oh, I think there is. It will, even the idea that you would want to have service at the moment of the rising sun. What's the problem with that that you could see? Well, f- just off the cuff, Nimrod, the f- the father god, you know, the sun god. If if we're um, from from a pagan perspective, if we're celebrating his reincarnation, the conception of him in the moon goddess, mm-hmm. then the rising sun would seem to um, represent his resurrection, right? Okay. The sun coming up from darkness and being reborn, or at least impregnating um, the fertility goddess, it seems to have a lot more connection. And even uh, Isaiah calls Lucifer the son of the morning. You can hear Jay Z right now. Lucifer, Lucifer, son of the morning. So you niggas change your attitude for the asking what happened to you. Lord forgive him. He got them dark forces in him, but he also got a righteous cause for sending them a murder me. But yeah, okay. I, I can see it right now. Uh, that whole sunrise deal, and you know, Lucifer being considered considered the light bearer. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that paganism is built off the idea of the rising, the, the constant death and resurrection of the sun, mm-hmm. right? The annual yes. cycle of all of that, which someone pointed out is actually teaching people about reincarnation. Interesting. Constantly dying and being reborn, dying, being reborn, dying and being reborn. And it's, <laughs> this is a, a nerd moment, but it's crazy to see how even small areas of our culture have adopted this idea of reincarnation. Did, did you ever play Halo, the first one? I did not. Okay. I, I really didn't get into Halo until probably like the fifth game. But Lance was into it. Okay. And Lance tried to get me uh, to play a lot of it. I just, I didn't have an Xbox and I, I didn't get what all the craze was. Okay. I read some of the books. I thought they were really good. Okay. Uh, then the, the authors changed and it kind of fell apart. But anyway, in the first game, if you would, you could throw sticky grenades. So for those that don't know, you you are this like genetically modified individual. Wow. Going back. We're going to let that <laughs> go because that's got, that's got <laughs> juicy stuff to talk about. Oh, yeah. Picked up during government operations as a child, brainwashed. Oh, geez. Wow. I don't even recognize all this stuff. Yeah. So anyway, they make a super soldier and he's supposed to be pretending or protecting the earth against uh, an alien invasion or alien takeover, really, called the Covenant, which is a group of different alien races that um, aligned under a religious covenant to then, you know, kill everybody. That's why they're called the Covenant. Yeah. I didn't play the game, but I did get into the uh, Paramount Plus series, Halo. Okay. Which is okay. built off of the, the lore from the comics in the game. Right, right. So some of this but I'm yeah, familiar so, with just from that, but I never understood why they called them the Covenant. Okay, yeah, because they were had all aligned under this religious covenant. But you could throw sticky grenades, and if you throw a sticky grenade to to one of the races called grunts, they would they would run past the screen and scream, "Oh no, not again!" Oh, they blow up and they come back. Apparently, they come back. Interesting. 
or else there, there'd be no reason for Oh No, Not Again. So even in the smallest areas, you know, you see these ideas uh, from this pagan structure just saturating our culture. Yeah, that's like the second tier of the satanic control matrix. Uh-huh. Brainwashing us through our entertainment, especially like video games, you know, as an example. Right. All to undo. Like, so this, the pagan structure, uh, Nimrod, Semiramis, Tammuz, took place before Babel. And then you have Babel happen. And all of the stuff that we see now is trying to undo that judgment. Right. Even through H.P. Blavatsky saying, you know, there's this thread through all religions to kind of bring them together. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, all of this stuff is to put back together that original satanic structure that we're talking about. And I think that's why you see it everywhere. That's that's fascinating. It's yeah, it's it's a little scary. True. Speaking but of scary, interesting. Easter eggs. Now listen, man. Everybody's got a sacred cow, and some <laughs> places they got sacred eggs. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't. That's how, good... how are Easter eggs bad? Well, you talked about before, like what do you do with the child that's conceived in this weird sex orgy ritual with the priestesses and all of that. Right. Well, eventually they're born if they're not aborted, right? They're born. And then they'd be what? Three months old, four months old this time next year. Right. Okay. About three. So what they would do is they would sacrifice these children and, um, you know, collect their blood in a pool and they had these ceramic eggs or stone eggs to represent fertility of the fertility goddess. Of Ishtar? Of Ishtar. Okay. And they would dip the eggs in the blood to color them. Really? Uh-huh. So the whole practice of decorating, as we'll say, or painting an Easter egg uh-huh. really comes from, or I guess would be safer to say, is a modern day reenactment of darker occult rituals that involved child sacrifice and blood ritual. Oh yeah. That's disgusting. It's yeah, this, this is in my research. This was the one thing that really messed me up more than the other stuff. Now, see dude. Okay. So we get into this and I, I know we kind of talked about this a little bit with our Halloween episode, but when you start getting into these conversations, uh, there's probably a tendency to want to take the isolated extreme example and use that as the poster child to promote why certain activities are innocent, right? So take something like a Fabergé egg. Really pretty, right? Mm -hmm. So you're telling me, if I get an egg and I want to decorate it or make something really pretty like that, all of a sudden I'm connected back to this ancient ritual of dipping stones in the blood of children. Come on now. And it becomes super yeah. easy to dismiss it, right? I've, I've uh-huh. seen some people using uh, modeling paintbrushes, really small, fine detail, really paint an egg and in these intricate patterns. Okay. Right. Nothing like what we would do growing up where you get your little, 
Easter egg bundle from the store. It's got this little what like watercolors or something in there. You put that in the water and throw your hard boiled egg in there, and it come out different colors. Like, ooh, look, it's negative purple egg. Uh huh. Right, nothing like that. But they would do like really art artwork on these eggs. Uh huh. Are we saying well, that's wh- that painting an egg is is an occult practice? No. So what are we saying? For the person, it's like I just love decorating eggs. Well, one one thing that came out is is it's not just decorating eggs. Like you were saying, the whole practice that we have is based off of coloring things in a way that that we don't color any other time in our life, right? You put the little coloring in the water and you actually dip it. Like the ancient practice was dipping the egg in blood. And instead of getting getting colored pencils or you know, fine paintbrushes or whatever, just because we like making things pretty, we're actually dipping these eggs in in colored water to to paint them. And it's not like you were saying, just the act of coloring an egg that makes it dangerous. It's the roots of where something like this comes from. It's the spiritual connections. So I'm going to throw my mom under the bus a little bit here. We we've gone back and forth over this a lot because she's not she's listening, but she's not on board with with the whole Easter thing and giving it up, right? Okay. So we've had to go through these different conversations over and over. And she's like, Well, if that's not what it means to me, if I'm not sacrificing babies and dipping them, you know, if it has no specific religious significance for me, then why is it bad? So I asked her this question. I said, what if I started decorating my home with pentagrams? She's like, well, that would be a bad idea. I was like, but why? God made stars, right? God made geometry. He made circles. I just think that the pentagram is incredibly aesthetically pleasing to my eye. I love the star and the circle thing. It just, I'm not a Satanist. I don't practice any kind of magic, but man, this thing just, it just resonates with me. And I want to start putting them up all over my house. That is, is that a, a good idea? An approach, man. That's <laughs> and she's like, I see what you're saying. <laughs> right. Right. So is that a decent answer or, or do you want to, do you want to add to that a little bit? Um, no, I, I think it's a, a, a good example of how we have to tackle that. And the reason I brought it up kind of playing devil's advocate is because I know that there are so many different people that listen to the show. Right. And uh-huh. they come from different walks of life. They have different degrees of understanding on various topics. In some respects, their their understanding even exceeds our own. Um, oh, yeah. A lot of the time. Right. And I, I didn't want to be so cavalier to, to talk in a manner that disregards someone who may be really listening to us, but struggling with the idea of accepting the reality of what we're talking about. And so there's always going to be that that pushback that looks for the the minute extreme. Okay. To say uh, where is this wrong? And I I get it. Like you know I I feel that struggle. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to recognize it. I also think it's important to adequately um address the reality that's going on, which is that we live in a world tainted with with Satanism. Mm -hmm. 
So at what point as followers of Christ are we willing to admit that we, A, have been deceived, which takes a bit of humility to be able to say that. And it's okay because we all get deceived, right? Um, uh-huh. But when are we willing to admit that and then willing to look at our surroundings and say, if we really are in a hostile environment, then I have to start treating everything as hostile. It's not easy to come to, to terms with that. It's not, but it's so key. And it's even for me, like when you phrase it that way, almost every time you do, it's a check for me to, to reconfigure and recalibrate. Like we are behind enemy lines. We're in hostile territory. This idea of it's probably fine is not a, not a very wise mindset to have. I agree. I think it's very dangerous, but I also think if it's true that, that, that these things that we're talking about are real, mm-hmm. then I think that the serious follower of Christ has got a problem on their hand. And that is in what manner and what, to what degree do we want to be different from our surroundings? Yeah. That's a good point. Like if everybody's we are saying, supposed to be set apart. Exactly. If everyone's saying that this doesn't matter, then okay. Do none of the holidays matter? Yeah. That's do a some, good point. Where do we draw our line? Was it wide is the way and broad is the path that leads to destruction? Yeah. But narrow is the path to life. Right. So at the very least, if it's what everyone else is doing, we should at least that should at least give us pause to investigate further. That's what I'm thinking. And so I think for that person yeah. that that's thinking about, well, you know, you're talking about eggs and, and I think it's easy again to, to latch onto that, whether we're talking eggs or bunny ears or any of the other common things that go with Easter. I think as a, as a serious follower of Christ, we have to look at a, hey, why do I want to hold on to this so badly? Why am I fighting against it? And and then B, what if, if this isn't dangerous, then what things are? That's a good point. Something's got to be if we're behind hostile walls, right? If we're right, really right. in a war, then then what is? Like, like this rock may not have a mine underneath it. So this this rock was safe. But are all the rocks safe? I don't think so. I, mean, I think it would be very foolish to suggest that. Right. No, I would agree. So I think we have to begin to take a different approach to the various things that we've encountered because so many of us have been so conditioned to accept things without understanding what we're accepting. Okay. It kind of reminds me of a king snake, coral snake situation. I don't know if you're familiar you with m- those. No, I am not. So there there's this um there's this there there are these two snakes that look almost identical because they have very similar color patterns on their body. One actually mimics the other. So one of these snakes okay. is incredibly poisonous and the other snake is benign. It's it's not poisonous at all. Okay. But it takes a keen eye to to see the difference between the two. And it's literally the difference between uh, life and death. 
like the 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 coral snake is extremely venomous and they they've got this saying uh red touch yellow bad for a fellow red touch black good for jack okay okay because the both snakes are have red black and yellow markings okay and if red touches yellow that's the coral snake that's incredibly venomous if red touch black that's the king snake it's not gonna hurt you at all interesting the problem is you could be your, your kid could be out on the beach playing and a coral snake come up mm-hmm. and people around can be like oh that's not that harmful that's nothing and if you don't know the difference between the two you can mistake a coral snake for a king snake king snake is harmless Right. Interesting. Painting. Yeah. Yeah. Just painting eggs might be harmless, but dipping eggs on a religiously significant time of year and a, and a ritual that's reminiscent of the ancient practice is not innocent. Right. Knowing that difference could be the difference between life and death. Same with the, the King snake, coral snake, knowing the difference between those color patterns can be the difference between life or death. We can't treat like everything that. as innocent. We can't treat everything as, as benign. We also can't treat everything as hostile. We have to know the difference. And I think that that's mm-hmm. what, what it, it takes scripture and understanding of that to be able to delineate between the two else, the rest of the world that's under the pagan influence that you pointed out earlier is going to tell you this uh-huh. doesn't matter. It's going to tell you it's, it, it's not that serious. It's only a king snake. And you find out the hard okay. way it's a coral snake. Yeah. I don't want to find out the hard way. Exactly. That's why you got shows like this to tell you the difference. <laughs> I like shows like this. Me too. That's why we decided to do one. That's I funny. was about it from day one. <laughs> no, you weren't. Don't lie. <laughs> Everyone already knows if they've been listening. Uh, fighting tooth and nail the whole time. No, no, no. I was like, this is a dope idea. We got to get our voices out to the masses, baby. We got stuff to talk about. <laughs> oh, geez. Well, I'm glad you're on board now. I have no choice. I'm being held hostage. <laughs> I'm on the HMS ORP. I'm bleeding. Hey, we're twice. not even, we're, this is remote, right? So we're not, I can't even, like, I can't make you put your glasses on. I can't, you know, prevent you from blinking if you need help. You can't blame me for that now. If you don't get, if you don't get help now, that's all on you. Ain't wrong, Christopher. This is episode, what, 54? Yes. Yeah, so you've had 53 episodes of conditioning me. I am now <laughs> the victim of cognitive conditioning. I have no choice. You need to be deprogrammed. I need to be. I just don't know why he's willing to jump in here and deprogram me. Oh, uh, that's funny. That's funny. I, I did, in, in the midst of researching this, I found some other really interesting connections to this whole pagan structure. Okay. So you know the, the namesake of, of our country, right? We're America. Yeah. But it came from Amuraka. From the plume serpent, right? Correct. And the plume serpent is Quetzalcoatl. And that the same dude the, from from Wakanda Forever. Yeah, the cool, the cool, cool, cool. <laughs> There you go. That's it. Serpent God. Uh huh. TJ's like, how many times are you going to do that? It's like every time. It sounds so great. It's not bad. It's not bad. It, it's the way Winston Duke said it. His people. 
did not call him General or King. They called him Kukul Khan, the Feather Serpent God. But anyway. Yeah, no, it's good. All right, Quatsicola. Yeah, so, yeah, so the, the Mayan Aztec God, right? Plume Serpent, all that. Well, did you know that his mother was called uh, Chamaman? No. And she she was said to have um, given birth to Quetzalcoatl via Immaculate Conception, and she was considered the Queen of Heaven. No. Yep. Really? Uh-huh. No idea. Yeah, That's as the crazy. namesake of our entire country. It's built off of that. Uh-huh. Yeah, the 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 Queen of Heaven title is just eerie. Why so? Everywhere that it well, everywhere that it shows up. Cause um well, I think I said before it was uh it was Deuteronomy where they were making cakes to the Queen of Heaven. It's actually Jeremiah, so I apologize for that. Oh uh, no mm. sweat. But it's in it's in Jeremiah that the Bible, because the Bible talks about the queen of heaven. So we have all these pagan structures talking about the queen of heaven. And it's, it's interesting how easy it is to obfuscate the truth or the, the connection when you hide behind different names, right? Mm-hmm. So like Chamaoman and Ishtar and Semiramis clearly aren't connected at all. Different cultures, different times, different whatever. But when you look at the actual title of the the Queen of Heaven, then it starts to to connect a little bit tighter, right? Okay, explain. Well, I mean, because whoever fills the role of Queen of Queen of Heaven, looking at um, like trying to trace out history or whatever, because they're not just fictitious beings; they're actually worshiping actual entities and spirits, like you know we've we've been saying. So this like recognizing Lucifer as the son of the morning. And, you know, Jesus has specific titles for us because it helps represent um, the role that he fills, right? Even though he might be the, the translation of the actual name might change a little bit. Mm-hmm. The the title holds uh, a, a greater meaning, if that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> or at least one that holds up through, culture shifts. So if you look at the queen of heaven, it's specifically the third part of this pagan structure. Well, and that's, that's what Easter is about because Ishtar is the queen of heaven. So the, the, the connections are, are all over the place. One of the disturbing places that we see this show up and you, we mentioned it a little bit earlier is that Mary, the Roman Catholics believe that Mary is the queen of heaven. Now I've heard this before. Have you? I've heard this idea. It, it bothered me the first time I heard it because it's not something okay. I was personally familiar with. I don't, okay. I'm, I'm not Catholic. I, I don't really follow Catholicism. At least I didn't at that point. So this notion of Mary being a queen of heaven, I mean, I didn't really have anywhere to put it, but we started doing this type of research and that came back up. I'm like, yo, whoa. Okay. Wait a minute. That's a big deal. Right. Especially because they pray to Mary. You know, you start seeing some other connections that that are, are real interesting, but it all plugs into this this basic satanic structure that emerged with Nimrod, Semiramis, and Tammuz. Yeah, but, and it's kind of cool because it helped really explain the idea of why Mary seems so venerated. Right. I even pulled up, remember the pictures that you sent me from um, when you were in D.C.? Yeah. 
Well, I was looking at one of them from inside that cathedral. And it's interesting, the words that are on here. It says, the more you venerate Mary, the holiest of creatures, the deeper sense you show of Christ's divinity. Oh, that's weird. It is weird. Uh, I see the picture that was taken. I, I wouldn't even take the picture for that reason. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, I, I took these. This is like, I don't know, maybe like 10 years ago. It was more than 10 years ago. This was a, a while so, ago. So you're just a youngin'? Pretty much. I, I didn't even know you at the time I, I took these. We went on this trip. Oh, yeah. So your life hadn't even started yet. Uh, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I was just more amazed at the, the structure and where they had this particular picture. Uh, but the, what you're referencing is an, an inscription above the the archway. Uh-huh. It's kind of like this. It's a picture situated between like a vestibule. Yeah, yeah. And it's way up high, and it was just kind of cool to see that there was artwork up there, but I, I wouldn't even pay any attention to the inscription. Okay, interesting, interesting. Yeah, a lot of this stuff is is beyond questionable. Like, there's even a church um, called Mary the Queen of Heaven, you know, outside the the or Mary Queen of the Universe, uh, on the sign outside the church, Catholic Church. Then. And I got to credit uh, the Truth Unedited guy for this. Catechism 966. So a catechism is like a um, an explanation of doctrine, like a summary and an explanation. Okay. Does that make sense? So like uh, one doctrine in the Christian faith is sola scriptura. Was that like only scripture? Yeah. Okay. Like only within the words of scripture um, – is God's voice. Okay. So what I, what, what I just gave you was a summary or a definition of that doctrine. And that could be considered a catechism like that. But a catechism is the official like summary or explanation of it. Does okay. that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So catechism 966 says, finally, the immaculate Virgin preserved free from all stain of original sin when the course of her earthly life was finished, was taken up body and soul into heavenly glory and exalted by the Lord as queen over all things so that she might be more fully conformed to her son, the Lord of lords and conqueror of sin and death. The assumption of the Blessed Virgin is a singular participation in her son's resurrection and anticipation of the resurrection of other Christians. So in giving birth, you kept your virginity in your dormitation, you did not leave the world, O Mother of God, but were joined to the source of life. You conceive the living God, and by your prayers will deliver our souls from death. Yeah, that's a problem. A little bit. I mean, even here, this is not even talking about Christ and his divine power to deliver us from death, which only only he could do. Right. right? Only right. the Godhead could do. This is talking about Mary and her prayers or supplications will deliver souls from death. Right. That is a, a, a heretical teaching. It is. Absolutely. But if you notice, it says that when she gets taken up in heavenly glory, so when she's taken to heaven, she gets exalted as queen over all things. So she becomes the queen of heaven. Exactly. Exactly. 
that fits this pagan structure that we're talking about. And Catholicism is is and was the mechanism by which we get the holy days that are represented in this nation now. Really, all of them, or, or just some of them? Well, uh, well, a majority of them. The 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 a majority of the Christian recognized one, like not Cinco de Mayo, but I don't think Cinco de Mayo is a national holiday. Okay. <clears throat> so a majority of the holidays that have a the the strong religious backing come from Catholicism. But this is also a nation that is dedicated to all pagan gods, right? Exactly, according to Thomas Jefferson. Right. And the what? The most approved plan? Yes. Yeah. So it's interesting that our capital, we've talked about this before, is D.C., which is the District of Columbia. And Columbia, you guessed it, is another name of the Queen of Heaven. So do you know where... In the United States, this district of Columbia is located? D.C. Right. But where is D.C. like <laughs> geographically? <laughs> it's a little, it was right in the name, right? Yeah. yeah I, I think my a, wife did that to me too. I don't, <laughs> I'd have been a moron to not take that answer. Yeah. That's funny. But but D.C. is located between what two states? Um, I think it's um, Virginia and Maryland. Yes. Is that Virginia right? and Maryland. Yes. Okay. So it's interesting. In name, it, it sounds like there there's a connection, right? Like Virgin, Virginia, and Mary, Maryland. Wait, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. Run that back again. Virgin Mary, Virginia, Maryland. The Virgin Mary being the Queen of Heaven. And it's right in between those two states that the District of Columbia, the Queen of Heaven, is situated. Wow. Yeah. If I didn't break up Maryland and make it, you know, Maryland and make it Maryland or Virginia and realize that virgins in, in the name Virginia, I wouldn't see Virgin Mary. Okay. Between it's it's crazy though, right? States. Yeah. Yeah. It it is. But there I mean, we don't even pronounce it Maryland. It's Maryland. Right, right. So there's already, you know, there's already uh, uh, barriers to being able to, to discern that that are put in place. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because we did, what is it? Um, we do um, site definition, like you were saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you have to you have to look past that to see the constituent parts to see what it means. Right. So I actually looked up. I wanted to double check because I got this from Truth Unedited. I wanted to double check and make sure, you know, that Virginia wasn't just some you know, translation that sounds like virgin, right? Okay. Well, come to find out Virginia was named after the Virgin Queen Elizabeth I. So it does mean virgin. Wow. I feel like Drax right now. Do Maryland! Do Maryland! <laughs> Maryland was named after Queen Henrietta Maria, wife of King Charles I. So it is Mary, Maryland. The District of Columbia the capital of this nation dedicated to all pagan gods with the um, queen of heaven situated on our Capitol building sits between the States, Virginia and Mary Virgin Mary, which is also recognized as the queen of heaven. That's nuts. Yeah. That the, the planning in that alone 
is staggering. If you think of all the things that had to come together to the naming of the states, they would end up being side by side and that that's where you choose to put the capital. It's crazy. But not accidental. Not accidental. No way. You will not. You cannot convince me that that was an accident. But this queen of heaven, pagan saturation gets a little bit worse. How so? Have have you heard of um like the the term alma mater? Yeah, it's like the school you graduate from, right? Right. It can either mean one like the 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 school you graduated from or got your degree from, or the school can have an alma mater, which is like the song that encapsulates the spirit of your school, right? Okay. All right. I've I've heard that term that way too. I wasn't thinking about it though. Right. So this was actually a book. Um, that a friend let me borrow called the two Babylons talked about this, but the, the term alma mater means either generous or flourishing mother. Uh, yes, really, but worse than that, it has also been attributed to goddesses, um, Sibylle and Mary, the mother of Jesus. So it, 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 another way of interpreting alma mater is virgin mother. Because it's really um, an epithet of the queen of heaven. Wow. So we talk about, you know, all the layers of this satanic control matrix, you know, that the the United Nations is trying to gather all, all nations together for one world, one world order to um, undo the judgment that was put at the Tower of Babel. And we have the media that's a part of that. But then we have demonically inspired education or influence education here, even when you say after you do K through 12, which is 13 years an occult number of education, then you graduate to earning your degrees. The place that you earn degrees, you now have to reference as your virgin mother. As she spit you out into the world. Yep. That is fascinating. It's, it's nuts, bro. I don't know where you got all of this, dude. This is crazy. So when when looking at what is Easter really about, mm-hmm. it it fits too perfectly. There's too many layers, too many coincidences, too many things that line up to make this a a pagan holiday, right? right I'm following. And it's. <laughs> It's difficult because the two things that I have to wrestle with in this is one is I I really have um, fond memories of Easter Mm -hmm. time when I was a child, you know, going to church and everyone dresses up and, you know, the whole idea of celebration. But we have to look at if it's not really specifically what God has told us to do, because we're told how to worship him. And we're just doing it because these traditions make us feel good or we have good memories or even if it helps us feel like we're getting more connected to God, then it it's really us that becomes the God of the holiday, not the one that, that a majority of Christians say it is, mm-hmm. right? So that's the first thing that we really have to look at is who is the one we're pleasing by these practices, ourselves because we like to feel good about it? Or is it God because we're being obedient to obey him the way that he asked? But the other thing, like you mentioned, is these practices that are connected to spiritual roots. 
don't just get to be benign behaviors, but we have to ask if they're actually opening doors to spiritual attack or spiritual influence in our life. Because if we aren't able to sit back and ask these questions, it leaves huge gaps in our understanding of Easter and really any of these holidays in general. And that's a problem because then when we try to talk to people about it, all they're really going to end up hearing is this. (laughs) That's a problem. That's not what people really need to hear because this is such a serious issue. You know, this is potentially uh, a life or death issue because we're talking about coming to terms with the the notion of are if you're a follower of Christ coming to terms with the notion of are you serving and worshiping Jesus in spirit and in truth and if you are not a follower of of Jesus then are you worshiping a deity that you are intentionally trying to worship or are you being caught up into mass worship unawares on either of these fronts uh I don't think either is the right word on, on any of these fronts. There's a problem. You know, essentially you're, we're, we're being charged with coming to terms with are the traditions that we've gotten from antiquity. Are they, are they trite and meaningless? You know, things like painting Easter eggs, you know, eating ham at Easter, you know, enjoying some hot cross buns, participating in Lent or Easter egg hunts and chocolate bunnies, whatever, you know, is that all just innocent fun or is it possible that the roots of these practices actually stem from paganism and are leading us deeper into the occult without our knowing? I think the resounding answer is yes. It's definitely possible that they are leading us deeper into the cult. I don't think we can say without our knowing. Not after listening to, to this episode because it's really being hidden right in our face. Right. Right. So if someone hears this episode or maybe they've been doing research and this is just kind of the capstone or maybe they've been thinking about it for a while, what do you think a person should do if they're involved in a church that still adheres to a bunch of these practices and makes it a focal point of these particular seasons or this season? Um, What should they do? I think that's a great question. I think what a person has to do first is determine for themselves where they stand on these issues. They're going to have to do their own research and come to terms. Is this a pagan holiday? If not, then you don't have nothing to worry about. If there's the slightest Mm -hmm. possibility that it really could be not just paganism, right? But really a satanic oriented holiday a holiday that is designed to through veiled rituals, actually engage people in Luciferian worship under the guise of Christianity. That's a much deeper issue. And if it is, then the individual has to decide, do I want to participate or not in that or not? If they if they are a serious follower of Christ, I think it's really an open and shut question. But it has okay. larger ramifications on a person's life because from that will extend, if I don't want to participate in this, then I don't want my children to participate in this. 
right? Yeah. I don't necessarily want my family to participate in this. I know I got that kind of out of order. Um, <laughs> and order is important. You know, so if, if I don't want this for myself, mm-hmm. then I don't really also want my spouse doing it. I don't want us doing it as a family. I mean, I don't want my kids involved in it. And I don't want to support that as a community, not because I think painting an egg is 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 satanic per se, but understanding mm-hmm. rituals, understanding spiritual laws, understanding that God demands worship and truth and how particular he is about it. I don't want to encourage my myself, my family or my community to engage in that. I think they have to determine that for themselves. Now, once they determine they don't want to to do that, if they're going to a church, which the question presumes, um, I think they have to go and talk with the leadership. Find out what their leadership is thinking. You know, churches who endorse this may not know this information that we're talking about today. You know, mm-hmm. the leaders may not have been familiar with it. Shoot, we all have participated in Easter at some point. So all of us were yeah. under this deception. And I think there has to be a, a, a measure of humility and grace extended to the pastors and the other leadership. That's a good point. Thank you. Which requires having that conversation and having it sensibly. But when it's brought to the attention of the leadership, when a strong case is made, when it's biblically proven that this is a satanic holiday and the church turns a blind eye to it, I think that person needs to strongly consider fellowshipping elsewhere. And it's not just because of a disagreement with leadership uh, per se. It's really, you know, I love what Chuck Missler said one time. And essentials, we need to be unified. And non-essentials, we give grace, we give liberty. But in all things, we need to work together mm-hmm. in love. If this is a non-essential yep. issue, then you move through through liberty. You know, you allow people to do what they, they think is right. If this is an essential doctrine, which I think celebrating a pagan holiday that worships a God that is not the God we profess allegiance to is a central issue, right? That's idolatry at its core. That's Right. And it's been, sorry, I was just going to say, it's been an issue for God's people since the beginning of time to separate themselves from paganism. Right, right. And so, so I think that's why a person has to strongly consider going elsewhere because what it essentially means of a church who's been given an opportunity to come to terms with this evidence and this information that we're talking about today and still makes a determination that this is not a spiritually significant issue that needs to be addressed, then essentially what that church is saying is that they are comfortable continuing the practice of marrying satanic rituals, customs, and traditions with biblical doctrine. And that's expressly forbidden in scripture. Okay. That makes sense. That's why I would say that person at that point has to strongly consider fellowshipping elsewhere. Okay. But I don't think that should be the immediate jump to. I like that. You know, if your church is participating in Easter egg hunts or or other things, um, that should be a flag that we probably need to have a, a deeper conversation, but it shouldn't necessarily yeah. mean I need to leave immediately. It should mean I need to talk with the leadership. I think that's wise. Cause a lot of times, at least in, in the world today, 
you know, that that separation, that division is encouraged. So I think it's cool that you highlight that it and um that you really need to take it before the church. You know, because it's supposed to be a community thing. It's not just a place that you happen to go on Sunday. So, you know, you you get involved, you have relationships with these people. So yeah, absolutely talk it out. Maybe they don't know. You know, give them the benefit of the doubt. Don't just assume that that they know it's pagan and they don't care or or whatever. So I really like that takeaway. Thank you. Because, I mean, we do need to be fellowshipping with other people, right? Yeah. So it's not just don't go because that would even be another easy answer. Well, they don't get it. I'm just not going to go anywhere. But we we need people. We're communal beings. Right. You know, if we really sit back and think about it, every aspect of our life is connected to other people and requires other people to help us get through you know, as much as they drive into us, be independent, be independent. But that's how God made us because there's strength in numbers. Facts. Now, there's strength in numbers. That doesn't always mean that there's intelligence in numbers. So, you know, it, it might not matter how big your uh, Kansas Easter celebration is because the truth really is. You are not in Kansas anymore. You are on Pandora, ladies and gentlemen. Respect that fact every second of every day. Out there beyond that fence, every living thing that crawls, flies, or squats in the mud wants to kill you and eat your eyes for jujubes. If you wish to survive, you need to cultivate a strong mental attitude. You've got to obey the rules. Got to obey the rules. Yes. The rules of engagement. And number one, the number thing that we have to do is you have to educate yourself. And first things first is war doctrine, the Bible. It's key in developing a strong mental aptitude. You know, we say that so much here on the show. I think it's easy for that to just become like a trite expression. But the the reality, see, we even say that too. The fact of the matter is this is really true. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, if we didn't have scripture that says, hey, this is wrong, think of how many other things say this is right. Yeah. Scripture stands alone in many, many cases proclaiming right from wrong. And it is the intention of Satan and his minions, his cohorts, his captains, his generals. Their job is to pervert truth. Yes. Right. And one of the key indicators that truth is being perverted is when truth is inverted. Mm-hmm. Right. When the thing that is evil is called good, when the thing that is dangerous is called safe, when the thing that is wrong is called right. It's not good. No, but that's the world we live in. Yeah. Every day. We are in that world today. Yep. Exactly. We are bombarded with that every day. So if we, we, we live in 24-7 sludge, put it to you, put it this way. You know those people that you saw on that show, Dirty Jobs with Mike Rowe, who have to go into water treatment facilities and like unclog pipes or whatever deep in that facility and they're submerged under sludge? Mm-hmm. Like, Fecal matter mixed with water, all that crap. Sounds like a good time. That is our environment. No, it really is. It is. And it, it, we're, 
you don't want to be, listen, you really don't want to step in it, let alone be submerged in it. But many times we're running around waist deep, chest high, sometimes blowing bubbles <laughs> with this type of filth that surrounds us. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have the water of the word to decontaminate you, you're going to get infected with this stuff because it's everywhere. Everywhere. And, you know, I'm not in the medical facility, the medical industry, but one of the things I know is that infections have a way of messing with your brain. Okay. They spread too far. They spread to your brain. Your brain won't work right. You won't think right. The same thing happens in this environment. this world that we live in and we are infected with the lies that surround us. That's why it's so important to educate ourselves, educate ourselves with the truth, not with the opinion of our friend, not with our own feelings and emotions, not with the latest conventional pop wisdom, but with scripture, the only thing that has stood the test of time. Yeah. The unadulterated word of God. It's so crucial. I mean, these lies today are coming out, man, they're coming out at such a ferocious rate. I mean, we've got artificial intelligence pumping out lies. Yeah. It's not. I saw the Pope in some dope gear that I know he doesn't wear. Because <laughs> AI generated it. Mm-hmm. Like the sludge is getting higher. Yeah, it is. <laughs> because now we have bots creating sludge for us to, to have to wade through. God gave me this analogy when I was turning when I was turning my life around. Cause I spent a lot of time on a motorcycle. And there's just No. <laughs> you motorcycles? But there's just dirt inherently everywhere. So I think I took a shower, I hopped on the bike, I did like half a day riding in the sun or whatever, and I get off. And like my face is a little dirty and my hair's greasy. And I'm like, what is this? And he's like, it's just the nature of navigating where you're at. Like you can't escape the dirt that is just everywhere. And that was just dirt. Like you were talking about sludge over our eyeballs, which is where we're sitting at now. But that's why you have to constantly go back and wash. You can't navigate this thing called life without getting dirty, without needing washed by the word of God. Right. So one of the things that this word of God tells us is actually about the observance of days. And we had talked about this a little bit. So I'm curious to kind of get your feedback here. But in uh, Colossians 2, 16 and 17, it says, Therefore, let no one judge you in regard to food and drink or in regard to the observance of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Such things are only a shadow of what is to come, and they have only symbolic value. But the substance, the reality of what is foreshadowed belongs to Christ. Okay. What's your question? So the, I think the last time we talked about this, you brought up the point to what holidays are they actually talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times we just assume it means that it's fine to observe any holy days, right? Any festival. Well, somebody could use the scripture as justification for that, right? Uh-huh. But you pointed out that he could very well be talking about just the Jewish ones, yes? Or did I mis- misunderstand what you were saying? I was saying the biblical ones. Okay, right. So the the um, Paul's not saying, yeah, you can you can go ahead and go to that that pagan sex orgy, right? Because it's just the shadow of Wait, things it, to come. 
Exactly. Because, I mean, in the, begin- the very beginning, let no one judge you in regards to food and drink or in regards to the observance of a festival, right? Mm-hmm. Food and drink, though. Remember when the when new converts came to the apostles and they were talking to them about, hey, this person says that converts have got to do this. Someone over here says they got to do that. What do they got to do? They listed, what, three things that they had to do. One of those was not have food that was dedicated to idols, right? Yes. But I thought this said here, don't let no one judge you in regards to food and drink. Okay. It has to, it, it indicates, this is not a contradiction. It indicates that there are things that are within the scope and then things that are off limits. Obviously things dealing with idols are off limits, right? That's going to violate the very first commandment. Have no other God before me. Mm -hmm. Right. So this has to be talking within a scope of things that are allowable to and dedicated to Yahweh. Right. Right. And the other thing I thought was interesting here is because this was a uh, amplified translation. Okay. Uh, it says that such things are only a shadow of what is to come. They have only symbolic value. It's interesting that despite how you want to look at it, that these things do have symbolic value. Like, you know what I mean? A lot of times we go, well, that's mm-hmm. not what I was thinking about or whatever. That's not, you know, what it means to me. But there is still symbolic value in these things that we're doing. So we need to be careful of what are they actually symbolizing? Absolutely. Like that's hugely important. Uh, uh, there was a scripture that we came across in preparing for this episode uh, where it talked about how God was upset with the people who um, were practicing this worship of Tam- of Tammuz. Uh-huh. He was upset with the children that were gathering wood, the, the husbands and fathers that were making uh, the fire, and the women who were kneading the dough. Uh-huh. Right? All the stuff necessary to make this this food offering. Right. But what guy would be upset at a child that was just getting wood? I mean, getting wood is not... Now, on the surface, getting wood would seem like a benign activity. Mm-hmm. Right? This is not something that... It, it's amoral. Right, right. But when you're getting wood for something of spiritual significance, it's not amoral. Correct. Right? God doesn't play that. Right. And I think we have to take the same the same measure of seriousness. I would agree. These things matter in the spiritual realm. They do. For sure. You know, flip it the other way. Like uh right now we're kind of focusing on something that we shouldn't be doing that's dedicated to to Satan, right? Mm-hmm. But God takes the same approach for people who shouldn't be doing things dedicated to him when they're out of relationship with him. Okay. Right? Well, you, you, a lot of people right now during this season will take communion. Okay. But scripture clearly forbids if you are not in the fold, you are not supposed to be taking communion. You're taking a curse on yourself to take communion and feign this level of intimate expression of, of, um, of fealty to Christ. Okay. And this is not truly you. You'll drink a curse on yourself. Interesting. But it's just I just I just took a little thing of grape juice. Yeah. That's no, a, spiritual world, this is significant. It's interesting that you bring up communion because that's one of the things that I wanted to bring up. Because scripture does tell oh, us my bad. No, it's okay. The scripture tells us that we do need to remember. It's important to have traditions or have things that you put in place to your life to remember. But he doesn't say 
make Easter eggs or dip Easter eggs or make cakes or whatever. You know, it was it was at Passover, you know, when he broke the bread and said, you know, take take and eat and then drink the wine and do this in remembrance of me. Exactly. So anytime we would even set out, and, and you're right, a lot of people do take communion this time of year, but I know a lot of people that don't. But still, okay. but still participate in other Easter traditions. Mm-hmm. I think it's a a major thing to pause and look at if we are claiming that we are doing something to remember our God and leaving out the thing that He said to do to remember Him. We might be starting off on a bad foot. Exactly. Yeah, but that's I, I had forgotten. You know that point that you brought up. That yeah, if if you're not. If you're not really all in, then don't take it because this is not going to be good for you. You know, I, there's so many moments in in the scriptural record that records relatively small actions that had profound, profound significance and impact on the world around them. Like, like take the scripture where uh, Israel goes into a camp. They completely destroy the camp and they're told, you know, don't take anything. And one of the soldiers takes something. It didn't take a lot. Mm-hmm. One like he took millions of dollars or anything. He just took you know some small stuff of the enemy's. Um, <laughs> I was gonna say the enemy's booty, but that was gonna sound bad. <laughs> Hot cross buns, baby. Uh, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> um, but the, he, he took a small amount of of the enemy's belongings, right? Mm-hmm. And bought that back into the Israelite camp. And the next battle they went to, like thousands of people died in battle. Thousands. Yeah. And when God singled out the person, like that person's entire family and their belongings were swallowed up. For what? Like, what'd you take? Mm-hmm. Small stuff. You're telling me that this was that significant? It is in the spiritual realm. Yep. These these actions and things that we do are not benign on this planet. And part of the lie that we have that we've bought into is that so much of our existence is meaningless when the reality is so much of our existence is meaningful. Mm-hmm. It is full of meaning. Yes, and so much of what we do matters and is important. Exactly. Exactly. So anytime I think that when you're talking about spiritual things, if we start taking the posture that this is not that important, we are already moving down a path of, of allowing ourselves to be deceived. And many times it can be deception to, to a great degree. I would agree. And I think it's, it's interesting. Um, I don't know why this just came to mind, but a lot of times this, this topic, this conversation about Easter, should we do it? Should we not do it? Is it really pagan and all of that? I see kind of a division in two different camps. So there's the, the, intellectual ones, the historian type, right? That is just looking at it from, from, from that perspective and seems to leave out this spiritual component, right? Okay. Okay. So, uh, you know, a lot of the breakdowns is just, you know, uh, some of the stuff that we dealt with today, but not like the actual spirits that are behind it, not spiritual warfare, not opening doors, not signaling to the enemy, those types of things. But it's, it's interesting to me because it seems like a lot of the people that are concerned with opening doors and signaling to the enemy and are kind of have an eye or an uh, an ear to the ground when it comes to spiritual things, don't take the time to go back and look at the historic record. 
So you get any any kind of assessment or look into this. You get two camps, but you really have to put them together to get a whole picture of what's going on. Got you. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. It does. And I mean, Scripture even tells us that we're not supposed to be ignorant. You know, Ephesians 4, 17 through 18 says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. We have a responsibility to not be ignorant. <laughs> you know, the average person hears that and they're like, how are you going to not be ignorant? Uh, I believe it's my brother-in-law that, that said, ignorant has the word ignore right in it. Oh, that's dope. I like that. It's not just not knowing. You refuse to know. You ignore what you should know and what you could know. Interesting. I was like, that hurts. It does a little bit. So I told him promptly, I'm going to ignore that. <laughs> I was not ready for that. Yeah. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people that you get on a certain subject and it's difficult or hard to hear or, or takes too much effort. And they're like, I'm not ready for that or I don't want that. That'd be ignorant. Well, dude, this is kind of one of those subjects, man, because this this stuff hits close to home. You know, like I've, I've gotten on social media. I've seen friends of mine. I've seen some of our listeners like, you know, they, they participate in this. Maybe they're doing stuff for church or they might have a, a what seems to be a pretty innocent little Easter uh, costume for their kids. You know, maybe they're dressing up as a bunny or something like that. And the stuff doesn't seem that dangerous. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the danger. That coral snake doesn't seem that dangerous. <laughs> right. But it really is something that's super dangerous. Mm -hmm. And it still follows the pattern that we identified in our Halloween episode. You know, most of us are introduced to these holidays. Like we said earlier, they're introduced in our childhood where we're most vulnerable and impressionable. And we form these strong emotional memories, these attachments to this thing. That's just like, you can't tell me this, this thing that I grew up with that seemed innocent. And I don't really have any pertinent negative memories about is really this, this vile thing. Mm hmm. Right. I mean, I like I told you, I, I, I boiled Easter eggs. I didn't have nothing in mind about about kids. Yeah. Right. I was just having fun. Yeah, it's it can be challenging to come to terms with this type of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but it's so necessary because we're conditioning the next set of kids the, the next set of people. We're conditioning our children. And that's who the war is after. Like many of us that are listening to the show, we've we're we're not fully set in our ways, but we've gone through the satanic control matrix to varying degrees, mm -hmm. right? And we've been conditioned to varying degrees. But just take me between the two of us, dude. You're more likely once you find out something is bad to stop doing it. Mm -hmm. I am more likely to see how long this thing is not going to kill me. <laughs> Right? That's funny. Yeah. It's unfortunate. Like there's a level of stupidity that I still <laughs> walk in. You should really let this go. Yeah, but I like it. It's going to kill you, but I'm alive now. 
How long can you hold a radioactive element before it kills you? I don't know, but I'm doing good right now. <laughs> well, remi- right, instead of run. Right. It reminds me a little bit just of, of sex. I'm sorry. This is not the segue <laughs> I thought. No, promiscuity. Because everything that you're saying can be applied to this this argument because in America, we're over-sexualized, right? Mm-hmm. I've got good memories. Of- what? I'm not saying this. I'm saying for the sake of the argument. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about sex. We're over-sexualized, but I have good memories of, of, of sex. <laughs> I'm comparing it to the, the whole Easter. I have good memories of Easter growing up, but I have good memories I of sex, you. right? It feels right. good. Right. I've done it. Mm-hmm. I haven't got any STDs. I haven't got anybody pregnant. Why is this really such a bad thing? Exactly. Because it's not up to exactly. it's not up for us to decide. Is is part of it. But yeah, it's it's a difficult thing to come to terms with. Well, see, e- even when you talked about you know the sex the sexual issue, the it's funny. We normally will pick a couple problems that we can say this is not applying to me. So. This this topic as a whole is not as pertinent as I'm being told, mm-hmm. but there's a level of of hubris that extends to where do we we think we have a full handle on the information on this topic, and like just when we were talking about sex, we we listed real quick some things that we haven't done. You know, I haven't got anybody pregnant. I haven't got any STDs. You know, I'm fine. There was a whole bunch just left off in that list. Okay. Forming soul ties, mm-hmm. empowering spirits through sexual energy that's released through human orgasm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, like there's a lot of different things that can happen in a sexual uh, environment that goes beyond just STDs, pregnancies. Right. Right. There's a lot of different things that can happen. And we don't even talk about all of that, but then once those get on the table, we start dealing with, deeper realities of the issue, which indicate of higher degree of severity that was not, we weren't aware of, Mm -hmm. i.e. it was more dangerous than what we knew. Right. That's the problem in trying to put ourselves in, in the, the driver's seat, the God driver's seat and make these, these grandiose declarations on the innocence of a weapon that we oftentimes don't have the cognitive capacity to understand its danger. That's a good point. You know, you can hold nitroglycerin and not think it's dangerous. But if you don't understand how unstable it is, you'll learn. Right. <laughs> yeah, one way or another, you'll learn. <laughs> you will learn very quickly. But the person who manufactured nitro- nitroglycerin knows mm-hmm. these these weapons that are aimed at us are developed by Satan and his cohorts. They know the danger. We oftentimes are like the bunny inside of a cage with a snake. The bunny doesn't recognize the danger. Yeah. Snake looks relatively innocent until the bunny's in the belly. Yep. Then it realizes, (laughs) you know, how dangerous the snake was. Yeah, but we don't want to wait until it's too late to recognize the danger. That's, That's the thing. You don't, which is why you do what we were talking about. It's why you have to educate yourself. It's why you have to get into scripture. It's why you have to take scripture seriously. You have to learn what God talks about when it comes to observing days of significance. It's why you have to learn the scripture tells you not to be ignorant of certain things, right? Mm -hmm. 
this stuff's important because this is what keeps you safe. Yeah. It's also why scripture tells us there's things that we need to remember because in that sludge that we're talking about, man, it's easy to forget the stuff that's important Mm -hmm. and stuff is vital to our survival. You know what I mean? Uh Uh-huh. Taking all of that together lends us right into rule two, which is that if you do all of that, you gain ground in the spiritual realm. Okay. But you have to make sure that the ground you gain, you don't lose. You don't give it up. Yep. Easiest way to give up ground is, again, to act like something is less serious than what it is. We're in a hostile territory. We have to admit that and come to terms. Things are designed to kill us. Like we literally bear the image of the creator God. Satan hates that. Mm -hmm. He's not able to wipe (laughs) us off this planet because we're protected, but he can get us to give up a lot of that protection through our own foolish decisions. Yep. Therefore on this planet that we are on, we are under constant assault. Right? Yeah, we are. And we can't give up the ground that we gain. We have to capitalize on that. Right. We've got to stand firm. Right. So we do. And so there's three things that we have to do. We have to expose things, right? James 5.11 gives us that authorization. Expose the things you see the enemy doing, which is what we're doing here today. That's why we talk about the stuff that we, we do on this show. But then we have to oppose it. We have to resist it. You can't resist what you think is harmless. Right. Right. If, if Easter isn't bad, then what was exposed about it? Okay. Once you realize something is exposed, you have to resist that. And resisting is not enough. I mean, you've got to do that personally. You've got to do that collectively. You've got to do that, you know, in your communities, we've got to do it corporately, but resisting is the intermediary stage. We said, you don't give any ground to the enemy. You take ground. So that means he has to lose ground. The only way for him to lose ground is for us to start tearing down things he builds up. He's built up a culture that says Easter is innocent. It's fun. It's okay. And in the meantime, he's obfuscating Passover. Jesus didn't die on Easter. He died on Passover. Yeah. That's critical. Mm -hmm. These two are separate. Sometimes they coincide and they overlap. They are not the same thing. If you go to church to celebrate Easter Sunday, you're celebrating the wrong thing. Yep. It's Passover you're supposed to be celebrating. Uh Uh-huh. So you expose that. You shine a light on it like that's wrong. You resist it. Okay, I'm not going to get involved in that. But then you start tearing it down. You start having these conversations with other people. You start pointing this stuff out. The enemy has to suffer losses. You know those people where they say some people only learn through pain? Uh Uh-huh. Satan only learns through pain. Okay. He's got to hurt. I like that. You got to bust him upside his head. Okay. That's the only way to teach him. Sitting there quiet talking about, I don't want to have a conversation about Easter does not teach. Right. And believe it or not, that's part of what we were put on this planet to do was to, was to rule. We were supposed to take the look. Okay. If Jesus is the second Adam, I know we don't have a lot of time for this, but if Jesus (laughs) is the second Adam, 
right? Uh-huh. Then the things that Jesus did actually indicate what Adam was supposed to do. Oh, that's a good point. Jesus took, right? Jesus took the, the, took heaven and brought it to earth in order to establish dominion on earth and extend that out to the cosmos. Mm-hmm. That's what Adam was supposed to do. That was supposed to be part of our job. Okay. That's what we were supposed to do. This is why Satan is so terrified of us. We're not supposed to be participating under his uh, satanic religious protocols. We were supposed to bring heaven into here and extend out into the cosmos, defeating, breaking up his satanic religious protocols, not participating in it. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. That was our job. Yeah. So the idea of us just sitting around scared to have a conversation about Easter because we might offend somebody or piss somebody off, that's not the point. The point is not whether or not we're pissing you off. The point is that this is serious. This is so serious that God gets involved on this and he doesn't have, he doesn't stomach this well. Mm -hmm. His people are not supposed to be involved in occult practices, no matter how Christianized they are. Yeah. Sad thing is things can be Christianized and still not be biblical. Mm -hmm. Right. We're only supposed to be doing things that were biblical. There is no record in scripture where Jesus participated in Ishtar worship. Ishtar rituals, Ishtar festivals, and they were around during his time. Yeah. Why are we? Interesting. That's <clears throat> that's thought provoking right there. That's what we got to do, man. That's how we take ground. I like it. And it's critical to do that. Yep. And that takes us to rule number three, which is one of my favorite of the three. We have to all pray right. like it's all up to God and we have to work like it's all up to us. It's two sides of the same coin. I love that one, man. Ted Brower, I think, threw that, threw that at us, and it's stuck. Yep. It's such a great principle. It really is. Because I remember hearing teachings about how one of the most difficult things to do is to know when to, like, when to stop trying and just rely on the Lord or whatever. And that doesn't, that doesn't give you anything to do. It just says good luck on this trial, right? Right. You know, when the Lord's effort overlaps ours or whatever, but the pray like mm-hmm. it's all up to us or, work, or pray like it's all up to God and work like it's all up to us is perfect. I think I, I agree with you. I think it captures dead center, both extremes. Yeah, I would agree. So some of the stuff I think we should pray about or that we can pray about in regards to this is one, we should pray for discernment and grace. We need discernment and grace one and, and I guess first for ourselves, so we can we can really look into this stuff. We can take it in objectively and be gracious to ourselves in the fact that we were ignorant before, and that the steps forward are really going to be difficult. Okay. And then also in interacting with others about it, because this is a deep seated emotional and spiritual tie rooted in a lot of our childhood. We have to we have to discern when and and how to broach this with people but we need to be gracious for those that that might not be ready to accept it facts i think we could also pray to be infused with the the courage to walk away from things that we've actually been trained to do dude i th- i think that's an excellent one cuz like i said earlier that can be really difficult to do it can be yeah 
And then one of the the big ones, you've kind of pushed me to this this type of prayer or to bring this up is to pray against the entities that are behind these holy days. We have been given authority through Jesus Christ against the works of the enemy. So direct them towards these entities. You know what I mean? Take spiritual authority. Pray with the boldness and 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 power that Jesus Christ has given us. I think it's vital. I yeah, I, I agree. Start with your, your yourself before you just proclaim to principalities and, and, and regions. Clean up your own house. Yes, for sure. Determine for yourself where you're going to stand on this. Just like the scripture said, you know, me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Mm-hmm. I think that's critical. Then you, you're able to extend that prayer outward further and further. I would agree. Now, the stuff that we can do to work is number one, look the stuff up. Don't just believe us because anytime that you just believe something someone else says, it, it could be washed away easily. Right. And then we, it's possible we were wrong about some things, but check it out for yourself. You know, we put, uh, in our Patreon, we'll put links and resources and stuff to help get you started, but you've got to determine for yourself, you know, what you need to do. And you, and you can't just sit back and think harder about it. You actually have to look and, and, and do the investigation. Right. Two, we, you've got to be determined if you're following God to really do what he asks. You know, if you're going to look into this stuff, don't do it if it's not going to make a difference. I think that would be unwise because the more you know, the more responsibility you're going to have to take action on the information that you have. Right. So you you gotta set set your sight on 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 God before you get into it. So because you're not pleasing Operation Red Pill or your pastors or friends or whatever by doing this. It's really about worshiping God the way that He asked to be worshipped. He's the one that you're pleasing. That that needs to be priority. You can share the show because we're talking about the difficult stuff. It'll help you out. Another thing you could do is consider joining our Patreon. As always, it's an ORP podcast, or you can find us at orppodcast.com, but our Patreon is patreon.com slash ORP podcast. So you can get on the ground level and provide cover fire for us as tier one operators at $5 a month. That'll get you all the links and resources that we use to make the show and full length, all the full length episodes that we do. You can get on on the second level and provide Overwatch as Tier 2 operators, 7 bucks a month. And that'll get you everything from Tier 1 as well as access to the actual notes that we use while running the episode. And let me tell you, the notes for this one are a doozy. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's an understatement. <laughs> and then you can get in on the top level with Bring the Rain Tier 3 operator for 10 bucks a month. That gets you everything in tiers 1 and 2, as well as an opportunity to participate in a monthly Zoom call with both of us, where we go and cover current events, upcoming projects, and open the floor for people to ask questions for whatever they want. It's really been a, a cool experience for us. Yeah. That's been great. I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to the one for this month. Yeah. And, uh, and we'll, we'll tr- April 30th. April 30th? Yeah. Okay, and then we'll try to do better communicating and getting the links out to the Zoom call because I think some of that was on us from last time. But yeah, we want to see as many people as possible because it really is just a good time. But here's the last thing that you can do. 
is remind yourself of what scripture tells us, which is we are never alone and we are not fighting alone. Now we are fighting, but we're not fighting alone. And God has promised to never leave us. And we have a community of believers all over the country and all over the world and a loving God who intervenes on our behalf. Because one day we'll know for sure how to worship our Savior. One day we won't be looking at history through muddied lenses. One day we will get to observe the impact of our worship firsthand, knowing God just as he knows us. But until then, we are deployed to this dystopian rock by our Savior in Chief, the very one that's commissioned us on a seesaw. That's right. Run a combat search and rescue mission here, people. Be advised, the hostages we're after are likely to be hostile towards us. But you know what? We still gotta go get them. Now our task and order is simple. We're to search for and rescue anyone that can be sympathetic to Christ, but is currently held hostage under Satan's deception. Make no mistake, we will be operating in a hostile environment, but the rules of engagement are clear. Listen to me, you take fire, we expect you to give fire. Now I need you to keep your head on a swivel out there. You stay frosty, stay faithful, and above all, you stay in the fight. That means do not give up, because we're counting on you. You ain't alone out there. We're fighting right next to you, and we'll see you out there again, fighting on the front line. 10-4.